Oh, how much further do we have to walk through this dumb cemetery? Lord, forgive me. Further? Our journey hasn't even begun. Not until the moon has risen and set 13 times and the bats have picked the fruit trees bare. Only then will you be ready and the path will find... Oh no, here we are. Daniel, this is an open grave. No, Greg, this is our new studio. Why is it underground? I read that the closer to the center of the earth you get, the better the sound quality is, but the deepest I could dig was six feet. Get in the hole. Why is there a coffin in it? That's not a coffin. That's a recording booth. Get in the hole. It's shaped like a coffin. No, it isn't. That shape is the most conducive to capturing the unmistakably rich baritones our listeners have come to expect from us. Now fire in the hole. You're fired. Get in the hole. I'm fired? Can't hear ya. I'm in the hole. Get out of there. Get out of where? The hole? Yes, the grave. Get out of there. The sun is setting and I forgot to put on moon tan lotion. Fine, help me out. I'm trying to be a good guy Dig a grave for a friend. Welcome to Trump's New America. Grab my hand. Come on. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Whoopsie. Why are your hands so slippery? I just got them waxed. Somebody. Somebody help us, somebody. Wolf sound effect. Come help. You know, we don't spend enough time alone together like this anymore. Okay. Okay. There's probably enough oxygen here for the both of us to survive for 30 minutes, or just one of us forever. You, stop breathing first. <laughs> Why are you breathing faster? I, I, I don't know. I thought it was the right thing to do, and now I can't stop. <laughs> Wait. What is that? Someone is either burying us alive, or testing out a maraca. Sir! Sir! Sir or miss! Wait! Senor? They're not stopping. There's gotta be a, uh, there's gotta be a, uh, something. There's gotta be uh Wait, wait, the bottom opens. There's nothing under us, remember? Hole, fire, you, me, bottom of. Greg, Greg, shut up. gotta lead somewhere. It's a tight squeeze. We'd have to crawl, but I think we could just make it. I was at the gym earlier, so, you know. Wait, let me do some sit-ups. There's no time. I'm ripped. Let's go. What's that sound? Is it you looking at my abs? Nobody's impressed with those. It's coming from up ahead. Oh. What's going on? Why is everything wet? Yeah, it's weird because it was like that before I got in here. Look, there's a red glow ahead. That must be where the sound is coming from. <laughs> hey, Greg Berry, you know that new sound you're looking for? Not now! <sighs> what? Uh. Oh my god. What is that? Greg, I'm scared. I'm gonna... I'm gonna touch it. Why do you have to touch everything? It stopped when I touched it. Do you see that? Wait a second. I think it's communicating with us. Oh no. I know where we are. Where are we? Funky town. Get back in the hole! How much further? It's just up ahead. Here it is. Occupied. So, is this a mass grave, or are you here all alone? Daniel, she's a corpse! So I have a fetish, is that what you want to hear? Let's go! Fine! See you in hell. 
Yeah. Okay, we're here. Shut the door. <sighs> we're safe. Wait, no, we're not. We're still buried alive. Is this the same door? Talk about it, talk about it. Yeah, it is. What do we do now? Shh, 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 shh. Listen. Listen to that. Now either... It's not a Morocco, okay? Someone is digging us up. We're down here. Help! Help! Help, 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 help us! Help! 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 We're down here! Help! Help! We're down here! Help! Daniel, why did you bring me out here? It's cold and we're surrounded by wolf sound effects. You try to be a good guy and dig a grave for a friend. Welcome to Trump's New America. I told you I buried all our podcast equipment down here to aid the microphone so we get the best sound quality. Well, it sounds like we're testing out maracas. Here it is. Open it up. Gasp. There's two skeletons in here. Wait, Daniel, look at the abs on those bones. They're unmistakably my abs. Watch. You're right. You know, I never told you, but I was always impressed with those things. These are our dead skeletons and a living Vincent Price. Yes, you see, they were dead all along in the coffin, but alive as old men above ground. <laughs> now, isn't this a macabre Actually, I find it a confusing intro. Yes, but it's one that people will talk about. Talk about. Talk about. Move. Christmas. Why you bugging? <laughs> Creepy Hello. Christmas, everyone. Creepy Christmas. Haunted Hanukkah, Hanukkah to all of you. I hope that you uh, were looking forward to this From episode. From our, boo- our booish listeners. <laughs> What's that supposed to foolish? Mm. What's I guess if you think Judaism is foolish, sure. <laughs> Welcome to <laughs> Greg's new it. Trump's America. <laughs> <laughs> Greg presents Trump's new America. <laughs> Greg's car only has a right turn signal these days, and they only do U-turns. <laughs> Oh boy, Trump's the America. I'm loving it already. <laughs> it's what? brought to you by McDonald's. <laughs> uh, that, that's the political section of the show. So I hope everybody had a nice November, a nice Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. I hope so too. One of those we... Classic moments between me I and know. Greg. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel lays down something casually sentimental, and they just <laughs> stare at each other, wondering why. Wondering what the upcoming Thanksgiving is going to be like, and you just triggered so many bad memories for me. Hey, trigger warning. Trigger norming. Um, trigger norming. Tr- trigger norming. Um, <laughs> That's the name of my... Uh, <laughs> They're Paranorman knockoff. <laughs> yeah. He's very rude, but he's casual enough to be like, hey, I'm going to be rude. This uh, creepy Christmas, Han and Hanukkah, we're going to be talking about Tales from the Canyons. Yeah, the Jump Grand in. Canyon. Yeah, we were looking into different stories. Creepy or kind of grisly that happened on in... Within uh, the canyons of Los Angeles, of the, which there are 
four about four in the hollywood hills <laughs> i was always scared of the canyons and now i'm yeah on our first creepy sick of them because i had to read so much, <laughs> so much. About i don't ever want to even drive near there our very I first don't drive anywhere near we've talked about on this show <laughs> we're gonna live in pacoima now because nothing ever happens there apparently Wait, i can go from pacoima to east la <laughs> <laughs> closing my eyes about four times through the drive <laughs> our very first creepy christmas we talked about probably the most famous of the canyon stories which was sharon tate mm, visited yeah, by the Manson yeah. family that's, that's i know the big i was one so then. excited to like oh there's one story we can tell yeah. from the canyon. oh no greg told that yeah that we we've covered that already <laughs> it comes up a couple times in here because it, you know the canyons are the canyons and they smell of each other you know what i mean <laughs> no <laughs> no no we they, don't. Smell, they smell of each other <laughs> so i'm gonna start it off i'm gonna be talking about the police called it the four on the floor murders four people in a little canyon home had been beaten so severely the coroners had to reportedly peel them off the carpet uh, but it was a beaten you could dance to because <laughs> it was four on the floor <laughs> but uh your feet might get wet because there's just blood everywhere <laughs> it was a brutal crime scene it was the summer of 1981 it was wonderland avenue and the cops were going to start asking questions to a man who over the course of 2,253 adult films had had sex with over 14,000 women. Oh, that's it? Mm, that's not that's a lot. Not, I mean, that's, a that's, a, like me. that's a, just a good year for me. <laughs> it's just a Friday night. Well, John Holmes is always trying to compete with Daniel Zafrin, which is hard to do. <laughs> Revolving door with this guy. This is going to be the Wonderland murders. Do you know anything about them? Thank you, friend. No, I don't. I, I had no idea about this when you shook me down and said, Daniel, we're talking about this. <laughs> we're talking about this porn star we're character. Talking about this, talking, talking about, about this, this, talking about this. this. We're I never, moving it. <laughs> I never want to hear that song again. Okay, so it's 1981 and times are not good for Mr. Holmes. John Holmes was most famous in the industry for sporting a 13-inch long penis. Uh, that should be said. I, trigger warning. Trigger warning. That has to be said about him. But after pumping sweet... That's it. <laughs> oh, so he was an amateur. What was he, like 10? Was Bing. the power on? If you know what I mean. After his long career in the 70s... Uh, I get it. You, do you want to interrupt the sentence every time I start? <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> I have a compulsion and I don't know how to help it. If you're going to write a sentence about that that's riddled with innuendo, <laughs> of course, yes, I am. Well, I know that I'm talking to you and you get tickled, of course. <laughs> so his good career years of the 70s and the cocaine and we're all doing the hustle, that's all gone. His drug addiction caught up to him and the actor could no longer perform his cinematic duties, meaning <laughs> he was impotent. His drug addiction was basically all he had now. His main place to score was the CD place off of Laurel Canyon on one Wonderland Avenue, 8763 Wonderland to be exact. It's small duplex looking deal with a garage on the street level and then a gate protecting trespassers from the stairs that walk you up to the house. This little place protecting. was protecting. Okay, so there's two stacks. Holding stacks up is a parking garage. To the left of that is a narrow little stone stepway and protecting the stone stepway is a gate. Okay. So can you see it? So we're not protecting pedestrians from this monster no. stairway? No. Okay. No, the, the, do I need to run you through trespassing in a home? How could that happen? <laughs> I live in a safe area. There aren't all areas like this. How do they get past the security? Guard. <laughs> he's armed i made sure of it he's armed with the phone number for the real police <laughs> the real police <laughs> <laughs> this little place was a notorious drug den leased to a 46 year old woman named joyce audrey miller with miller was her live-in boyfriend billy deverell who was a criminal who got arrested like some 13 times and then there's two other guys who That's lived there it. David Lind, who was a freelance bounty hunter, and another guy named Ron Launis, who had previously been convicted for drug smuggling. These would be the three of the four that were on the floor. This sounds like the cast of Star Wars. <laughs> a bounty hunter, a guy that's been arrested for drug smuggling. Mm-hmm. And, and a porn star. <laughs> a porn star <laughs> known as Mark Hamill. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't keep it in his, his robes. Oh, but I wanted to go jacket at Toshi <laughs> Station. His dad had to cut his hand off. It was so bad. 
every you night. found a way <laughs> <laughs> so that was the three of the four on the floor these four would often pose as police officers rip off competing drug dealers by confiscating their stash and sell that stash to their own customers in the criminal underworld where honor among thieves is a thing this was like insane <laughs> insane insanely risky way to do business one of their more frequent patrons who would often crash at the wonderland pad was junkie john holmes <laughs> holmes was a huge cocaine addict now and was resorting to breaking into cars at lax to hawk goods for drug money and i need to stress how comfortable holmes was with this place like holmes <laughs> knew every inch of it he was very holmes is where the heart is you know what they say i have that hanging up in my house it's 13 inches long <laughs> then it wears what i mean it's framed just like he was. Nah. Now we get to the most villainous in the tale of what seems like only villains. Eddie Nash is a elite drug dealer of the 70s, 80s Hollywood, usually dealing at nightclubs on Sunset Strip to the bands that needed drugs to make their awful sound. Like visible. who? Van Halen. No. Motley Crue. He owned a punk club that I heard about called the Starwood, which is, had a lot of the good punk bands playing at, but also had like, yeah, Motley Crue and all those bands. I hate Quiet Riot. Eddie Nash apparently was not something of an actor, but he you can see him in a small role in an episode of The Cisco Kid, in the episode called Quarter Horse. You can see him kind of standing by horse. <laughs> Eddie Nash was Palestinian. His real name was Adele Nasrallah. One of his frequent patrons in the late 70s, again, John Holmes, who during his heyday was known to spend as much as $750,000 a year on cocaine with Eddie Nash. That was then. This is now. It should also be noted that Eddie Nash is a dangerous, dangerous man. Dangerous man to cross. He considered Holmes to be a very close friend, reportedly even referring to Holmes as my brother. Around this time, the Wonderland drug group were aching for a bigger score. They wanted to hit Eddie Nash's place now. <laughs> you know, the dangerous man. I just told you not to cross. They had no idea how they would accomplish this and then they remember that Holmes knows where Nash lives. Holmes knows Nash. Nash likes Holmes and Holmes knows how to get in. So a plan develops with Holmes involved who they didn't think much of but now suddenly he had value. So on June 29th Nash threw a party and had Holmes as a guest. It was going good and everyone's on drugs and Nash is in a bathrobe which I keep reading is a thing he used to do and Holmes leaves the party but not without unlocking the patio door. Apparently he came back about three times to make sure it was I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> a lot of this this is the one story where I'm like I read the same thing like different times so everything's kind of speculative when it comes to drug mm. deals that nobody wants to confess when to. When it comes to what a guy who's about to be dead did before exactly. he died. So later that evening, three of the four, Miller, who owned the apartment, stayed out of it, but then Deverell, Lanius, and Lind, and another guy named Tracy McCourt entered the home of Nash dressed as police, and they handcuffed Nash's 300-pound bodyguard, Gregory Dials. Yeah. Now, this is again where it kind of gets sketchy in information. Um, they either shot Dials, or the gun accidentally went off when they were subduing <laughs> Dials, which scared Nash, and they managed to get to Nash, who was behind a door, who again, either voluntarily gone on his knees and showed the gang where the drugs were or one of the guys shoved a shotgun on his throat <laughs> and forced him to do it either way the wonderland gang made off with everything they took nash's heroin his cocaine his quaaludes jewelry and cash money totaling in about one hundred eighty-five thousand dollars. it was later estimated that all together with everything they walked away with like about a million dollars of eddie nash's loot holmes and mccourt who both played minimal parts in the scheme were shortchanged and reportedly both furious but they accepted whatever they can get it was more than what nash got it was a devastating loss to nash he was like even more than monetarily what he lost like his reputation as an organized crime boss was now crippled that that will not stand this simply does not happen now again reports vary on how holmes ended up back at nash's place after the heist some say that nash suspected holmes was the guy all along so he sent his boys to go grab him others say that holmes returned to appear innocent because who returns to the scene of crime nobody i mean i must i must be innocent unless I, they want to make sure the gates unlocked <laughs> am i doing that basically? did i leave my wallet here <laughs> did i leave a piece of my fro here <laughs> did i leave four inches <laughs> by returning he basically implicate himself i'm sure he doesn't know how to act with clothes on so it must be hard. <laughs> we're just asking for 
offer a testimony of where you were. You don't have to keep humping the handcuffs. <laughs> it's all I know. <laughs> One of Liberace's lovers had claimed that when they were there at uh, Nash's place, when they picked up Holmes off the street, and when they picked him, he was wearing one of the rings that he had stolen from Nash's place. Mm. Any which way this happened, Nash correctly pointed his finger at Holmes, and now the clock was set. His ringless finger. His ringless finger, obviously, because he has a little white spot there <laughs> where the ring used to be. Nash had his boys beat up Holmes and threatened to kill him and his family if he didn't give the name of the group that pulled the heist. So now... We get to July 1st, 1981, two days since the Nash heist. Around the witching hour, 3 a.m., it's not really clear which one of his goons he sent to do it, but three of Nash's men went along with Holmes. And then again, we don't know how deep Holmes' role in all this. Some say he just buzzed them in and let Eddie Nash's guys go up. Others say that Holmes himself was an attacker, but what happened was they came into the home and uh, they killed four people. One of them was someone who had nothing to do with it. Her name was Barbara Richards and she was dating, I believe, David Lind, who was not there. He was doing drugs in like Sun Valley or something in a motel with a male prostitute. She gets killed first and then they beat everyone else to death with lead pipes like in Clue. In the apartment at the time was Miller, uh, Deverell, Elanius. It wasn't in the pantry, was it? (laughs) It was all over the place. (laughs) I believe the lead pipe in everywhere. Miller was killed. Deverell was killed. Elanius was killed and his wife was also there but actually she managed to survive. She was a sole survivor of this which is why of five people only four of them died but she walked away with severe head injuries. Um, (laughs) To put it lightly, she had a really bad headache. <laughs> the bodies were found the next day. People had heard, I believe, when uh, Susan was being attacked, some people nearby had heard. So I believe they came, but the police made it by by the morning, at least. Um, <laughs> by, hopefully, at least. Living around the corner was then Governor Jerry Brown. Oh, no. Yeah, nothing happened to him. He's fine. We all know how that turns out. <laughs> that little boy who, <laughs> who witnessed the whole thing. They brought Holmes in mayor. because... <laughs> He's a little boy. I'm a mayor. I like the sound of that. They found a handprint there of John Holmes, a bloody handprint on like the railing of... Uh, uh, I believe a bed or a, uh, uh, high up on a wall. They were gonna say those staircases people were so afraid of. No, that's just that. I just want to set the scene. Eddie Nash wasn't arrested for this crime until 2000. He was 71, living in Tarzana as a retired party boy and fiend. He was brought in for. They s- have a community for them. <laughs> Fiendsville. It's called Tarzana. He was brought in for 16 counts of criminal charges, which includes bribing a jury in the 1981 case. That trial ended in a mistrial. The panel was deadlocked, 11 to 1. He bought off that last person. They brought him for drug charges, racketeering, money laundering. No murder though. Couldn't get him on the murder. They almost got John Holmes on that, but he died of AIDS before they could ever charge him for the crime. Years later, before he died, after he committed this act, he confessed to somebody, I believe his wife, that they brought him and they forced him to watch what happened. That he had no part in it, but then they still kind of don't believe, they still believe that he, like, they believe that he killed people. <laughs> there aren't a lot of reports about hauntings for this one. I read a couple little things here and there, mostly that the ghosts are very angry, that they will push and pull all visitors. Don't get too close to the TV or less supernatural activity intensifies, I read somewhere. <laughs> the TV show. The season finale gets way good. So it's, still it's still a house it's still a house you can the people bought it recently knowing full well what it was hey, we drove to the manson murder house and on people, halloween yeah, people would people would live anywhere yeah it's hollywood hills that's how you know that you made it yeah, yeah. if someone was murdered in your house you know you're a success <laughs> well that's uh grizzly yeah they made a movie with val kilmer called wonderland it's it's very good why did i not know about this oh it's porn <laughs> that's why sinners yeah. all of them yeah, yeah, yeah but don't. not for the killing <laughs> everything before that not even for the drugs that's fine just keep it under seven inches god gave everybody five inches you're not allowed more than that <laughs> okay so now we're going to another canyon right no. now <laughs> enter this one into your gps final destination tavern on the scream this tale will focus on the least canyon named canyon in this episode beverly glenn <gasps> beverly glenn <laughs> Beverly 
the famous Cha Cha Studio <laughs> in Beverly Glen. <laughs> it's a nice shortcut to beat the traffic going between Sherman Oaks and Beverly Hills, the place where I live and the place where I go diamond tasting, respectively. <laughs> it's also a nice shortcut to hell. This one's not big enough. <laughs> this one tastes like blood. This one doesn't taste enough <laughs> like blood. <laughs> so this road was a natural path that linked the valley to the rest of the city. So mm. caravans and travelers were constantly passing through it. But it used to be a hard trip getting to and from the valley. Hold for a snarky Greg comment. Uh, da, 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 da. Traffic. Traffic. It used to be a really hard trip going from the valley to, you know, Beverly Hills. Yeah. What is now Beverly Hills. But you, you want to complain about how long it takes with traffic, try it without traffic because there's no technology for traffic <laughs> to exist yet and it takes forever. It was not an easy road. So at some point in the 1880s, a rest stop of sorts was built at the location that is now 2181 North Beverly Glen Boulevard. And it was called the Four Oaks Inn and Cafe. Was it up top? What do you mean? Is it up top? Is it on top of the canyon or is it on the way up or down? It's is the it middle. Like slant? Okay. It's the middle. You'll 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 see exactly why it's going? in the middle. Oh. Yeah, you'll see. We're going right now. Yeah. We're in the car. You didn't know? <laughs> chugga chugga chugga. <laughs> so it was named that after a huge oak tree that grew in front of it that was formed out of the trunks of four different oak trees oh, that grew too close together and melded together as uh, one. I know all about that. Don't go looking for this oak tree because it was cut down in the 1940s to make room for a parking lot. Didn't those beer brothers learn yeah. anything from cutting down old Young trees? Nah. This place was a welcome pit spot, pit stop for people. <laughs> a pit spot on the city is what it became. It was a welcome pit stop for people traveling on this road, as it was pretty much at the midpoint. Like yeah. I said, because it had a lot of shade and there was grass and springs for the horses, and a very it was just a nice place to stop and to eat something on your really hard journey. There was another place to stay that sprung up a little later, just down the road at one five zero eight North Beverly Glen, that was known as the Old. Roadhouse. Mm. It seemed like a nice little place until it wasn't. Because they wouldn't clean it. Martha! Around the turn of the 20th century, there was a wealthy landowner from the valley who pretty regularly would ride with his wife through Beverly Glen and go see a show in a theater. Mm -hmm. Then on the way back, since it was late and the road was long, they would spend the night in this roadhouse and finish the journey the next morning. What an evening. Yeah. The wife loved the theater, but sometimes her husband wasn't able to join her, so every once in a while she would make the trip through Beverly Glen alone and go see a show. During one of these solo trips to the theater, she met another young theater lover, but unlike her... He was a male. Oh, no. His pants fit differently. That's odd. Huh. Better kiss him. <laughs> My policy. <laughs> Your pants are weird. Give me the smooch. <laughs> as much as this flamboyant young man loved theater, he loved wearing yellow just as much. I can no longer relate to him. I'm a maroon boy. <laughs> I'm a periwinkle pal. <laughs> the two of them struck up a friendship and would see each other at the theater more and more mm. until one day they decided to take the show into act two, the bedroom. <laughs> Starring me and you. <laughs> Duration. <laughs> to be determined. <laughs> to be determined. Finished. <laughs> the location they chose to stage their torrid affair was at the old roadhouse. You went to that with I your know. husband. I know. That's the, how dare you? But don't you find a bush. <laughs> Just like a opera loving gentleman does. <laughs> rut behind a bush. But don't forget this woman's husband still existed and a friend of his. She did. A friend of his saw the two together and tipped him off to what was going on. Golly. So when the husband found out, he was angry. So in a fury, he got on his horse and he grabbed the closest thing he could find, a scythe. Wow. In a rage, he rode at night across the entire valley I like hope, the Grim I, Reaper. Oh my God, I hope he uses that to cut open a gun shop and grab a, a civilized weapon. <laughs> this wheat needs to be harvested. <laughs> so he rode across the entire valley, up Beverly Glen, past the Four Oaks, and up to the roadhouse. He got off his horse, he charged up the stairs, scythe in hand, and he burst into the upstairs bedroom where he found his wife in bed with the yellow loving opera man. The husband raised the scythe, and in one 
cut off the lover's head, sprayed wow. blood everywhere. Wow. Everywhere. Now, the two things I read that happened next were either the husband was apprehended and tried and executed for his crimes. Single day. Or the, yeah, before the head even stopped rolling. <laughs> I also read that the locals came after him and hanged him. Oh. So I don't, in either case, he was killed and the wife lived happily ever after inheriting all of his money. Wow. Uh, hello, opera. <laughs> they wiped up the blood in the room and the roadhouse lived on, but eventually it was turned into apartments. The Four Oaks, let's get back there a okay. little bit up the road. They went through a much more interesting changes over the next few decades. It was remodeled in 1909 and part of this renovation is still there. They did good business until the 1920s when new, easier roads to get between the valley and the rest of the city opened up and more cars came into the city so the traffic in Beverly Glen started to dissipate which meant less customers for this restaurant. To cope with this, they decided to rename themselves Cafe Four Oaks and they became a speakeasy. <gasps> its remote location helped them go, like, who's gonna, you know, yeah. who, no one's, Nobody, the cops they're not looking they're up there. They're all fat, yeah. they can't get up here. <laughs> all those Keystone cops are weighing down the car, they can't get up the hill. Bill Parker's afraid of heights. All the liquor was served in the bar on the first floor, where supposedly Duke Ellington once played. Oh, all right. Yeah. And then up on the second floor was a bordello. A house for women. A safe place for women to exchange goods for services. Good Golly. Miss Molly, what are you doing here? How much do you charge? <laughs> so once Prohibition ended, the place went back to being a regular sort of restaurant hangout. That um, must have been the day <laughs> when people showed up like, I'm here to see Missy. No, we don't do that anymore. No. That's the name of a sandwich now. <laughs> it's $16. <laughs> and 69 cents. <laughs> You're used to that, sinner. So it became a popular place for celebrities to hang out over the years like Steve McQueen and oh. Vincent Price. <laughs> he used to hang out there. <laughs> Of course you did. In the late 1960s. Ooh, dreadful. <laughs> Ooh, is anyone still upstairs? <laughs> In the late 1960s, it had been bought by a former actor named Jack Allen, who decided to remodel the place. Among the things he found while remodeling were the remains of a moonshine still behind some panels downstairs. Cool. And then a secret compartment behind that that led to a hidden pathway that took you to a house up the hill, which is scary in yeah. its own right. H.H. Holmes designed this? <laughs> John Holmes. Other things, other things they found behind the walls were old makeup containers and lipstick and purses left over from those nasty women working painted ladies <laughs> but the remodeling also seemed to unleash something more sinister within the house what do you speak of daniel what let is me this? tell you <laughs> i am frightened activating <laughs> wedding pants sequence <laughs> while the work was being done one of the bus boys from the restaurant slept in the main dining area one night to make sure nobody tried breaking in when yeah. there was no windows or anything so he's sleeping in there and then in the middle of the night he wakes up and he sees a glowing figure of a man floating by the fireplace so the bus boy freaked out and left but this wasn't the last time that this bordello ghost as he's called was seen he's also been seen in the bar and is apparently very loud and very angry wow he's been responsible for footsteps heard going up the stairs disembodied voices in the kitchen doors opening and closing and lights going on and off the strangest encounter speaking of people like uh where's all the ladies the strangest encounter with him was when jack allen was asleep in the room he lived in upstairs in the middle of the night all of a sudden the door bursts open and the bordello ghost barges in and the ghost reportedly looked quote confused (laughs) and allen was yelling get out of here you don't belong here but he didn't leave (laughs) he did eventually but he was there (laughs) <laughs> he has to ask him a couple of times, go! Please, then sir. how? <laughs> Release me. <laughs> it's hard to tell exactly who this ghost may be because, you know, who knows what sort of unreported atrocities were yeah. committed in that place over the years being a cowboy rest stop in a yeah. bordello. But it's commonly believed that this is the ghost of the husband with the scythe. Oh. Even though it happened down the road, they believe it is him. Either he's lost or maybe he had stopped at the Four Oaks before he went to the roadhouse on his search looking even in death for the guy in yellow yeah. taking his wife to La Boheme, if you know what I mean. I don't. 
Me neither. Mm, we should have bought those opera tickets. <laughs> Meanwhile, down at the place where the murder actually happened, there are some not so ambiguous hauntings going on. This one's, I don't like this one. It scares me. The best documented story happened around the same time in the mid 60s when the people living on the top floor of the roadhouse, which is where the murder happened, mm-hmm. there were two female UCLA students. They would often have problems with the electricity up there with no logical explanation. The horror. The air would go cold a lot of times, but more frighteningly, they would hear heavy footsteps pounding up the stairs and then stop right at their door and just hear like oh, oh god the thing was there were no stairs going up to that floor like during one of the renovations of the place the interior stairs yeah. that the husband had taken they were covered up and the only way to get to that room was like an outside like the ones you were talking about those scary steps on the side of that house oh, like yeah, yeah, just yeah. exterior stairs going yeah. up also even if there were stairs it's weird yeah no yeah for sure yeah <laughs> but this is then Wait, there's no stairs here <laughs> <laughs> it's the ghost of stairs really it's the ghost of stairs that the renovators killed this is when the big one happened okay get ready one night one of the two ladies she came home and she parked her car and thought she saw something in the rearview mirror so she turned around but there was nothing there then she looked back in the mirror and she saw standing behind her car a man dressed in a yellow opera cape and black tie with no head just standing behind her car so she freaked out she ran upstairs and she said i'm not getting i'm not letting you in this time ghost and she's dead she ran upstairs and she runs inside and she tells her roommate I just saw something horrible so her roommate looks outside and said was it a man dressed in yellow with no head she's like yeah and she's like well look outside and there's just a man in yellow with no head standing outside I would say looking at them but who can tell yeah no we have to find the head to find out you can still face somebody with your feet and arms. shoulders his shoulders were pointing right at them so just standing out there and he was there for like 15 minutes and they just disappeared And then the next time they saw the landlord, they brought it up and he's like, oh, so you met him. And apparently everyone who's lived there has had an encounter with this headless man. So obviously this was the decapitated lover hanging around waiting for the wife to come back. He's also been reportedly seen in front of the Four Oaks as well. There was also sometimes they heard sobbing on the front porch of the roadhouse, either from the lover crying over his lost head, which again, I don't know how he can do that, or from the husband weeping, finding out like, I can't believe I have to go decapitate someone. I have to. I have no choice in this. Frontier law. Yeah, frontier law. The two UCLA students held an exorcism and they claimed it worked, but the ghost came back in the 70s, but apparently... Apparently, (laughs) it only works for a decade at a time, for each generation. He couldn't resist shag carpeting. I gotta get in on this. But apparently, the headless lover, he's pretty friendly. He's a nice guy. In 1972, an actress... That's a problem. He's too friendly. (laughs) He's got a good head on his shoulders. In 1972, an actress named Corrine Brosquette moved into the ground floor of the roadhouse. And when she was like having a tough time, like trouble with, you know, boyfriends or whatever, she would always feel a comforting presence that was there for her. She even once felt something strange stroking her hair. It's the the landlord again. (laughs) It apparently fell in love with her because sometimes it would hide her keys so that she couldn't leave. And he would curl up in bed next to her. Like she would feel something curl up in her bed. But I guess that's comforting to some people. One time the headless ghost got into her car and rode down the street with her before she was like, you can't, I'm not taking you into the city because it's changed too much since you were alive and you'll get lost. So he got out. During the 90s and 2000s, the roadhouse was converted into a house, but I don't know if there's still sightings of the headless lover that are there. The Four Oaks reopened as a French restaurant in 1987 run by the first maitre d' at Spago, Henry Labadie. (gasps) Henry Labadie. 
and it was sold in 1989 and then closed down again in 2005 the victim of the recession in 2013 it was sold for 3.5 million dollars to some farmers slash restaurant people named robert walsh and sandra costa who now have a 20-year lease on the property and they said they were going to reopen it but uh they haven't it's a weird i don't like it's an unsettling place to see especially at night especially when you're having an affair with the wife of a wealthy landowner and you love yellow as much as i do <laughs> scary setting place. yourself up for danger my friend well what could happen yeah. you want to come to the opera with me they don't even sell scythes anymore you're good <laughs> i told you about machetes. the scythe the scythe and big bear when i was i don't remember tell me again i used one to kill the man cuckolding me <laughs> the place we were staying just had a huge scythe over the door and it was just so ominous yeah that's that nobody wants to see that no. okay i'm gonna be talking about my next one and again trigger warning this one is very brutal very graphic on the halloween morning 1968 off of laurel canyon edward weber a personal assistant enters the home of his boss and finds the place has been ransacked he called out his boss's name but there was no reply the living room was a disaster furniture was wrecked pictures were tossed around there's an overturned chair next to his elderly boss's broken eyeglasses and a bloody footprint he checked his boss's bedroom and in the darkness was able to make a form out of a body on the bed it was his boss his face caked with blood body bruised head to toe naked with his hands bound behind him wrist to ankles uh, a sheet covering below his knees wrist to ankles yeah you're yeah your oh wrist God, are tied like to your pig? ankle yeah like a pig on the spit uh, is that a term? Yeah, like a luau. There, I'll put it in island terms. You can understand. Wow. There was a broken cane lying near his body. He couldn't see this at the time. Edward couldn't see this at the time. But on the corpse's back, the letter either N or Z had been carved into him. Mm, wasn't me. Was it, was, it was in. It was in. Zorro. Yes. It was the gay blade. It's kinky Zorro. <laughs> what he could see was what was written on the mirror, reminiscent of the most famous Kenyan murder, which was less than a year away, oh, no, no, no. Sharon Tate's. On the mirror, it was written, us, in us girls are better than the F word used as a slur in the gay community. And it was spelled wrong too. F-A-G-I-T-S. Us girls are better than that. Under his body written on the sheets was the name Larry. <laughs> like Lawrence, not like the you, rail line. You've killed me, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the name Larry appeared written on a telephone pad near the phone. The body was that of early film star and closeted homosexual Roman Navarro. Mm. And this is his story, at least part of it. For those who don't know the name... Thank you. Thank you. And that's how, that's where I'm ending. Thank you. For those who don't know, Roman Navarro was part of a trio of handsome and beloved matinee men from the 20s. There was Rudolph Valentino, who was another subject of the first Creepy Christmas. Mm -hmm. There was John Gilbert, and there was Roman Navarro. All had fantastic mustaches. Valentino died at the end of the 20s. They, they had to share one, though. <laughs> My turn. How can we never see them in public together? <laughs> the process of switching mustaches is uh, pretty... They're, they're Superman. <laughs> Valentino died at the end of the 20s, and Gilbert's career didn't last until the talkies, but Navarro was devastatingly handsome and had a fine voice for speaking and singing. His biggest role was starring as the titular character in 1925's silent version of Ben-Hur, A Tale of Christ. Oh. My favorite lines of his were, um, it was a silent movie. <sighs> Navarro was in, born in Durango, Mexico in 1899. <laughs> I just remember that one scene where he walks in and he goes... Oh, you guys can't see, but we're overacting right now. He <laughs> was born in Durango, Mexico in 1899 to a well-established dentist. Ramon was one of 13 children. The family moved around Mexico for a time, but ended up in Los Angeles in 1911. His father became fatally ill at one point, putting the responsibility of the family into Ramon's hands. He had several odd jobs. He was a busboy at the Alexandria Hotel. He mm. taught piano lessons. He was a theater usher. He was a grocery store clerk. But really, most of all, Ramon wanted to be in entertainment with a focused eye on opera. He got noticed as a cafe. What color did he like? wearing yellow oh no what, what shade do? whatever canaries are I was, I was hoping you wouldn't say canary because that's the only shade <laughs> and i was gonna say no this guy like canary uh, it's the only shade of yellow i, I know mustard's another minion one. yellow 
<laughs> Banana. <laughs> he got noticed as a cafe singer and started picking up little jobs in movies here and there. In 1921, it's a small town idol. And the same year, the Four Horsemen of Apocalypse. Is hey, I know we've talked about that movie before, but I can't remember why. Was Rudolph Valentino in that? I didn't check, but probably. I know we've said the words before. You want to look it up right now? No. Okay. We'll, we'll let our adoring fans do it. They're going to write us angry. Bruno's <laughs> going to come back and correct all this. Son. Our editor. His big break came the next year as the villain in The Prisoner of Zenda, as well as The Arab in 1924. The rule of Ben-Hur would come the following year and make him everything that he is. After that, he started breaking in like $1,000 a week courtesy of MGM, and he built a 17-room mansion for his family, which I think, if this is the same place, a Frank Lloyd Wright built it for him. But then he shared it with a lover. So it was called the Samuel Navarro House. No one died there, so I could. it wasn't in the canyons. He was also also able to perform for an opera and keep up his acting roles which is pretty cool his first role in a talkie was in 1929's devil may care and he kept it up with a role that sounds familiar too i don't know yeah i think valentino's Maybe for it's sure just my more. attitude i'm thinking of i just my hairstyle <laughs> devil may hair but i ask when i go to a barbershop and they say again this is a salon you need to leave he kept it up with a role in the matahari with garbo and then the barbarian in 1934 alongside cutie and orange fiend mirna loy no not she's Mirna Loy. She's at it again. Ah, oh, Mirna. How are we going to make her stop being in movies? Do we have to kill her in a canyon? <laughs> Coming next year. He was being billed as a Latin lover and women across the world ached for Ramon, but Ramon did not feel the same way about women across the world. <laughs> and being Catholic, the guilt of being homosexual ate away at him. He would usually enjoy the company of male escorts three years, paying for everyone to have a good time until they left and guilt and depression took him out for a good time. <laughs> Buy me a drink first of cyanide. But although he could transcend from silence to talkies, his career kind of dwindled when that style of acting kind of died mm-hmm. out in the 30s. Uh, the rest of his career, he started in little things here and there and found some work on television, that new revolutionary thing. Mm-hmm. He kept up with movies and singing through the 30s, but his reluctance grew to keep acting. And through the 40s, he spent most of it not acting. He spent most of his time on a 50-acre ranch he bought in San Diego. The last movie he was in officially was 1960s Haller in Pink Tights, and he carried out some TV roles through That's the decade. A long career. Yeah. Truly, though, he was emotionally done with acting years before that. In the late 60s, he was age-wise in his late 60s, approaching 70. He was a lonely alcoholic living in the Hollywood Hills, now just keeping up with escorts and drinking his guilt away. Now comes Larry. Larry. And then along comes Larry. Hiya. Uh, they're gonna die. Uh, <laughs> the Larry, whose name was written all over the crime scene, refers to Larry Ortega. Larry was a prostitute and a hustler who had worked for a famous Hollywood arranger, which is a nice way to say pimp, named Mr. Richard. I cannot find anything else on Mr. Richard. <laughs> Mr. Richard. You get the innuendo there. Oh. I think. I don't even like know. Nixon. Like tricky dicks <laughs> oh no oh no um i want to find out about this mr richard character but i there's nothing out there uh, someone Larry- put me in contact with mr richard <laughs> tell him business is back in business <laughs> <laughs> he's business larry has a sister named Marty, who he hooked up with a pal of his and a fellow juggalo jesus christ <laughs> <laughs> They've always been around. <laughs> We've always been here. Larry had a sister named... Um, <laughs> I'm a male juggalo. The only juggalo to ever get laid. Take that juggalo community. Your president won. Deuce buggalo male juggalo. Larry had a sister. He well, he has a sister. He hooked his sister up with a friend of his who is a gentleman of the evening named Paul Ferguson. Enter rough and tumble Paul Ferguson, brother-in-law to Larry. <laughs> Well, something about the docks. Paul had recently... I could have been a contender, too. (laughs) Paul had recently been dumped by his wife and was picking up money working the streets of Hollywood. Larry gave Ferguson a juicy bit of info. found a penny on the way in here. That's the same thing. Money on the streets, picking it up. (laughs) Working those streets. Working the streets for all they've got. Recycling. (laughs) Pennies. Rocks that are shiny. 
I could trick a bank. Larry gave Ferguson a juicy bit of info on an old John who lived up in the Hollywood Hills. He was an old movie star who liked to have sex with escorts, and he had about $5,000 cash hidden in his house. And oh boy, did Ferguson like to hear that. He hooked up with his 17-year-old brother, Tom, and the two contacted Navarro, saying that not only would you get Paul, but also his underage brother. So the Ferguson brothers went over to Navarro's home in Laurel Canyon and began drinking together. Ramon Navarro's personal assistant, Edward Weber, who the next day would find his employer's body, came by around 6 p.m. and dropped off cigarettes for Ramon, but never entered the house. The night carried on with drinks, but when the clock struck sexy time, Ferguson wasn't having any of it. Paul Ferguson had a lot of remorse and regret about his desperate lifestyle and he hated having sex with men for money. And when it came time for that to happen, Ferguson lost it and began beating Navarro until he was unconscious. Oh man. So together they dragged a 70 year old man to the bath and washed the blood off him. And when Navarro began slowly regaining consciousness, Paul flew into a rage and began pummeling <laughs> Navarro. <laughs> Just because he was waking up? Basically. He started hitting him with the riding cane that they, they so hard that mm. he broke the cane. He hit him in the head and the shoulders until Navarro <laughs> laid on the ground and it was there that he choked on his own blood. Mm. Then they tried to stage the scene, dragging him to the bedroom, tying his hands up to look like it was like a sex act gone mm. wrong, writing that dumb crap on the mirror to make it appear as if it was a woman that had committed the act. It makes that, sense why oh. Larry's name was written by the telephone, but it doesn't make sense to me and I can't really figure out why, why they wrote it on the bed sheets. Yeah, Maybe he was like still kind of alive and uh, the only name I remember from these joy boys. <laughs> they also placed an unused condom in his dead hand. Tom Ferguson, the <laughs> younger brother, made, oh, they, I guess they're staging the scene, so they put like an unused condom in his hand. Like, so it like, almost hey, happened. They didn't even start yet. Yeah, basically. Tom Ferguson made a 48-minute phone call to Chicago, and on the way out of his house, they- Asking f- if he spelled the F word right. <laughs> What do you mean this time? You're going to make me say it again? <laughs> you know the word. You know that new word you're looking no. for? <laughs> Please don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> On their way out of the house, they blew... They- threw all the bloody clothes in a neighbor's backyard. They also blew some dude. Um, <laughs> Do we have time? No. <laughs> Laurel Canyon, uh, I hear John Holmes is down the street. We don't have that much time. <laughs> in the end, the brothers got away with $45 in cash. The, the money, perfect crime. Yep. The money that Larry referred to had already been spent on redecorating his music room. <laughs> so they were both arrested in Bell Gardens after about six days after leaving a very colorful trail of clues for them. They were both sentenced to life in prison. Tom was released from prison after being granted early parole at the age of 25. He ended up returning to prison after raping a 54-year-old woman. Oh my God. Paul Ferguson was released after several years but found himself back in prison in Missouri for raping a woman. And the justice system keeps on not working. <laughs> At Ramon Navarro's funeral, over 1,000 people attended his open casket funeral. Why would you have an open <laughs> casket if someone was beaten to death? They can do wonderful things with <laughs> I guess so. Silly putty or whatever. He's silly putty. <laughs> He's buried at the Calvary Cemetery in East LA but in case you missed his 1968 Some, I, I, swear, I swear to God, someone else from last month's episode is buried there. Go on. We'll look into it. Yeah, if you missed his 1968 funeral, which you probably did, you could still pay Navarro a visit at his former residence, 3110 Laurel Canyon Drive. There are reports of poltergeists moving things in the home. Uh, but many the worst kind of ghosts. Yeah, because they move stuff. Many people just say that it has an eerie feeling as if someone was somebody killed here it feels weird in 1970 a stuntman named why do i want to name my child larry <laughs> in 1970 a stuntman named ryan Kelly, who was also a fan of navarro's started dressing like navarro after he moved oh i forgot to mention that he bought the house and moved in when he lived there he started dressing like navarro and even decorated his home the way it was when the actor was murdered wait like on purpose or yeah oh that's weird he put ads out yeah, looking both would be weird yeah both are I mean one's spooky one's just dumb <laughs> he put out ads looking for original decor and furniture from the home that belonged to the actor that would have been in the house when he was killed like he wanted to re-establish the scene yeah. of the crime bring me that condom I hear it's not used 
Bring me the condom of doom. <laughs> Bring me the condom of Alfredo Garcia. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't use them! In 1980, Connie Chung heard about this and filmed a TV show called Two on the Town, which was either a haunted house show or it had an episode, at least, that was about a haunted house. Filmed there in Little Canyon Home, and several crew members refused to enter the house. Really? Saying that they just had an overwhelming sense of dread. Ugh. Years oh. later, Kelly and his brother were having an argument in the house, and when Kelly was about to leave, he turned to his brother, who had a gun to his own head, and fired and killed himself. What? Kelly then sold the house. <laughs> That's Roman Navarro's house. I don't like that. No. Hmm. Is it still for sale? Let's tour Laurel Canyon and see what <laughs> murdered homes we could buy for no money for the penny you found on the ground tonight. <laughs> it's time for another story from it. This one is also on Laurel Canyon, actually. Ooh, well, well, I'm going to move my car. I'm going to park here and you can pick me up. <laughs> now, for a tale I'll call Prestidigispooky. In the Boudini oh mansion. Oh my god! Oh my god! No, I don't want this episode to be released. Because if anyone hears that, I feel like we're gonna get fired. You better hope that there's another curse and this recording gets deleted. Let's begin with the. Did I lose you at Prestidigis Spooky? <laughs> Let's begin with the namesake of this story. Born on March 24th, 1874, in Budapest, Hungary, was Eric Weiss to a rabbi named Meyer Samuel Weiss. As a kid, Eric, his parents, and his six siblings moved to Appleton, Wisconsin where he grew up a good old American boy before moving to the Big Appleton, New York City, with his family at the age of 13 in 1887. Little Eric became interested in the art of trapeze and dabbled in it a little bit, calling himself while performing the Prince of the Air in Western Hungary, born and levitated. But by the age of 20, he was well into magic and was performing under his new stage name that he adopted in 1891 that he took from his childhood nickname, Airy, and his hero, a French magician named Jean Eugene Robert Udon and was now Harry Houdini. Uh. That's who we're talking about. But Houdini? Houdini? Udini. <laughs> Around this same time also he saw a woman named Wilhelmina Beatrice Rahner performing in a play in Coney Island. He would do stuff at Coney Island which cool. is very cool. Yeah, he fell cool. in love and the two soon got married and she would go by the name Bess and became Houdini's assistant in all of his shows. Cool. He was great with locks and handcuffs but nobody really cared. But in 1899 a vo- I cared. <laughs> then how come you weren't born yet? <laughs> but in 1899 a vaudeville manager named Mark Martin Beck took notice of him and started booking him in vaudeville theaters all across the country and then sent him on a five-year tour of Europe from 1900 to 1905. So here he gained some serious fame as a magician, but also was in a few of the very first moving pictures doing magic during these years. Mm -hmm. When his tour was over and he came back to the U.S., he was a star now and would soon become the highest paid performer in vaudeville in the country. His signature was his escape tricks. He did things like breaking out of jail, getting out of handcuffs, getting out of coffins, which we could not seem to do earlier. Some of his most impressive escapes were things like the milk can, which had him locked in a milk can filled with water, which I'm assuming is a lot bigger than what we're thinking. Yeah. Also, if it's a milk can full of water, is it still a milk can or is it a water can? <laughs> Depends on the type of milk. That's is it fair. 1%? It's basically a milk can. Um, straight from the udder. You hear me? Straight from the udder. Nummy, nummy. my milk warm? I want it raw? Perhaps with blood in it. Why, why, why? <laughs> there was another one called the suspended straitjacket escape where he was put in a straitjacket and then hung upside down from a crane or a building and had to get out of it and then fell to his death. His crown jewel was called the Chinese water torture cell where he was locked into metal boots and lowered headfirst into a glass tank of water and he had to hold his breath for three minutes while he picked his way out of all of the locks. Even if like, this isn't really magic, he's still holding his breath for, for three, three minutes, minutes and also doing something you could never do. Yeah. Un- get out of metal boots. 
That's two things I can never do. <laughs> Untie my shoes and hold my breath. I can also touch water because I'm a gremlin. <laughs> it's still a mystery how he did most of his tricks because his journals were left to his brother when he died. And then when his brother died, the journals were destroyed. So no one wow. will really know. With an entertainer as popular as this, it's only a matter of time before Hollywood came calling. Hello, Mr. Houdini. Hollywood here. <laughs> okay, I'll hold. In 1918, a producer named B.A. Rolf. Bank of America Rolf. <laughs> Bachelors of Arts Rolf. <laughs> he offered the lead to Houdini in a 15-part serial named The Master Mystery. I wrote down The Mastery Mystery. Okay. I, I, it might be Mastery Mystery. It, I was also dreaming when I wrote this, so <laughs> I don't really know. Uh, also, it was that era and everything was dumb. <laughs> everything ended with a Y, just like the decade did. Why? It's the depression <laughs> He was in the Mastery Mystery, or Master Mystery, in which he performed his greatest trick of all and made that production company disappear. <laughs> it was not a success, but he was picked up by famous players Lasky, where he made two movies called The Grim Game and Terror Island. All in all, he spent about nine months in Hollywood. But where did he rest his head during this time? Go pee pee and potty. In the Chinese water tank. <laughs> into a milk can. Which is why he wanted to get out of there. <laughs> so that's the question at the heart of this story. Where did Houdini pee? It's a question nobody can really answer definitively. But the clues start in one particular area of an old stagecoach route we now know as Laurel Canyon. Stop. The area in question here is between Willow Glen Road and Lookout Mountain Avenue. So it's said that in the frontier justice days of the city, this area was used to hang bandits, which must be which must be why a wealthy landowner of a downtown department store named Rolf M. Walker decided to build his manor here yeah. at what was 2398 Laurel Canyon, but is now 2400. Walker was a shareholder in the Laurel Canyon Land Company, which took control of this area in 1907. And in 1915, Walker brought in builders from Europe and construction began on his dream home. When the dust settled, what stood on that spot was a three-story mansion in the Edwardian style with 11 bedrooms, nine bathrooms, a ballroom, a ballet room, a rehearsal hall, and four acres of property covered with a pool, grottos, ponds, fountains, springs, waterfalls, and the centerpiece was this huge stone staircase out front. Sounds like a Mayan temple. It also had a driveway that you could drive into from the street and then park at the top of it, and then the floor would rotate to face your car back towards the street when you leave. Have the technology. What year was this? Slave labor. Uh, 1915. They didn't even know about turning at the time. <laughs> they didn't have circles. A really nice. You don't turn me round, right, round, baby. <laughs> you turn me square, 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 square. <laughs> you turn me at certain angles, baby. Like a phonograph. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I was looking for. Like you turn me photograph. cylinder, baby, cylinder, <laughs> cylinder, wax cylinder. Like a phonograph. It was a really nice sounding place, only it seems that this entire area of Laurel Canyon is cursed. The first of the strange things happened in 1918 at Walker's son's 40th birthday party on Halloween. Mm -hmm. The son went upstairs to his room where he met up with a man who, it turns out, was his lover. A lot of uh, illicit homosexual love in this. It's the Hollywood and Hills. In, and in this recording also, studio that we're in. My thing happened on Halloween too. Yeah, that is weird. Well, um, shut up. The two, <laughs> the two proceeded to get into an argument and the son ended up throwing his lover off the balcony which had what? the strange effect of killing him. <laughs> Odd. Peculiar even. <laughs> How did that happen? Boy. He killed him. Gravity is a murderer. <laughs> he threw his lover over a balcony. Yeah. Like that scene Hey, who hasn't part. wanted to? Uh, yeah. Come on. I mean, they, they start jabbing at you like trying to, <laughs> they dig and they're like, hey, I thought we were going to throw they that say, thing. They stopped playing Pokemon cards? I'm not gonna. 
I bought them. I'm going to play with them all as much as I want. So Walker needed to cover this murder up, so he ended up spending all his money on bribes and things like that, and it worked as the court ruled that they had insufficient evidence to convict him. But He's this, not dead. We can, we can work with this. <laughs> this left Walker in need of some money, and that just happened to sync up perfectly with Houdini coming to town looking for somewhere to live. Now, this part of the story here is all speculation, and everybody has their own different version of exactly who was living where. Yeah. So they say that Walker and Houdini were friends, which is why Houdini came to him when looking for his place to stay during his time in LA. Some even go so far as to say that Houdini was actually a silent investor in Walker's land company and okay. owned part of Laurel Canyon. And so he owned part of this area, including the mansion. Problem is, there's no physical deeds or contracts or anything that have Houdini's name anywhere. Not as an owner, not as a tenant, nothing. Wow. But then again, Houdini was never one to have his name on contracts or anything like that. So you don't know who Was that who really part knows. of his act or was that like a business thing? Like, it seems like it's very theatrical. His the hands whole. didn't work for anything except undoing locks. Every time they gave him a penny, undid it. Where'd the pen go? I don't remember. <laughs> Is this your pen? <laughs> it was. So the non-believers say that Houdini would stay at the Alexandria Hotel, again, oh. when in town for his act, and then someplace near where they were filming his movies in his movie star days, but that theory actually fits with this because part of his movie The Grim Game was filmed in Laurel Canyon, so it would make sense he lived nearby. Also helping the case that Houdini was there was that there was a giant 25,000 gallon water tank at the back of this property, which is perfect for a certain yeah. type of practice yeah. of a certain type of escape performance. The evidence that Houdini lived in this mansion is slim, but it's much more likely that he actually lived in the guest house across the street and up the road a little bit at 2435 Laurel Canyon. So this guest house was on a little hill made of solid rock with an elevator that took you down through the rock to a tunnel that went under Laurel Canyon to the gatehouse of the main mansion. They didn't have the technology. Slave labor. <laughs> Do I have to sing the cylinder song again? Because <laughs> I will. This is bizarre. Is this steampunk? Is everything steampunk now? <laughs> Everything's gears? And, and So he would get into his dirigible. No. <laughs> So in this guest house, it's much more reasonably believed that Houdini was living there during his stay in L.A., although, again, there's no concrete evidence proving that, except for the concrete that the existent elevator went down. There's also no concrete evidence proving that Houdini wasn't a warlock, which he could have unlocked. He, he was so good, <laughs> he, he can so unlock good. a warlock. So the area around this guest house and this whole cursed plot of land was covered in caves on the side of this hill that the guest house was on, and legend has it that Houdini had a locked chest filled with all his secrets that he hid in one of these caves but never took it out and nobody's ever found it. Really? So we're going. <laughs> we metal finally be a magician. <laughs> one of these caves are also said to contain some gold hidden by a friend of the show, Tiburcio Vasquez. <gasps> That has also never been found, but that'll play into the story later. Houdini didn't stay long in the guest house, allegedly, because he got tired of Hollywood and decided he would open up his own movie company in New York called Houdini Picture Corporation, and he also started a film developing lab called the Film Development Corporation. But for whatever reason, nobody liked him in movies. So by 1923, both his his company, great hair, both his companies folded, and he was back to magic on the stage full time. But this was still enough to get him a star on the Walk of Fame in 1975, a year he would not live to see. We're just reenacting a scene from the silent Ben Hur. <laughs> you <laughs> remember, would love it. Remember that one part? But the last few years of his life after 1923. <laughs> 
<laughs> they got kind of weird. Houdini, you see, was a big fat mama's boy. <laughs> when his mom... A little Nancy, if you will. <laughs> Nobody could unlock his heart, unlike... <laughs> his mother. His mother could. When his mom died in 1913, it completely devastated him. He would have conversations with her at her grave, like Norman Bates. Yeah. He never moved past it. It's well known that Houdini hated the occult, but that was only because he really believed that there was an afterlife yeah. and that the powers that people claimed to have did exist, but none of the people who claimed to have them were telling the truth. Jeez. So he went to mediums and psychics to try to get in contact with his mom, but he quickly realized that every single one of these people were frauds. And in the 20s, he made it his life's mission to debunk all of them. He would expose their tricks on stage in his own performances. He wrote a book debunking them, calling A Magician Among the Spirits. He would even show up to seances in disguise just so he could oh, ruin them. Imagine. <laughs> it is I! Houdini! <laughs> Who is this skeptical man? Who is correct? <laughs> so this attitude of his even ruined his relationship with his friend, Arthur Conan Doyle, who was embarrassingly willing to believe in anything even remotely supernatural. Doyle even Him? believed... You didn't know that about... I, I thought that he was he thought like Sherlock. fairies were real. Like those pictures that are clearly like the first Photoshop pictures with like oh, fairies. Yeah. And he's like, but they're in a picture. Oh my God. They're real. Oh, so the he, one thing that Sherlock couldn't figure out... <laughs> See, Sherlock Holmes knew that the Hound of the Baskerville wasn't real. The author didn't. Doyle believed that Houdini was using real magic in his tricks and that he was debunking all these mediums by using his own magical powers to nullify the powers of the mediums yeah. to make people think magic wasn't real. Yeah, it's a long way to go, Doyle. Yep. Art. Get your act together. These beliefs are chronicled in Doyle's own book, The Edge of the Unknown. But what set the relationship over the edge was when Doyle convinced Houdini to take part in a seance with Doyle's wife to try to get in contact with Houdini's mom. Mm -hmm. So they all sat down and Doyle's wife went into a trance and she started doing automatic writing to get out the message that Houdini's mom had for him. Much to Houdini's surprise, a message came out that began with the sign of the cross and proceeded to talk to him in perfect English. Problem was, Houdini's mom was Jewish and wouldn't be using the sign of the cross, nor did she speak English. So he killed her. Magically, of course. <laughs> For my next trick, a gun. <laughs> I'm going to make life disappear. <laughs> I'm going to make this bullet disappear into you. <laughs> Houdini never looked at the Doyles the same way again after this. I so, goof. like, what are you trying to pull on yeah. me? Yeah. In 1923, Houdini even joined a panel from Scientific American that offered a $2,500 reward to any medium who could successfully demonstrate their abilities. Nobody ever claimed that prize. But still, Houd Let it go, man. Houdini believed that there was a way to come back from the afterlife and if anyone would be able to figure out how it was him. So he set up with his wife that should he die, he would get in contact with her and the way she would know it was him was because he would say a line from the play she was in when he first saw her which was Rosabelle Believe. Lucky for him, he soon got his chance to test this out. <laughs> On October 26, 1926, Houdini was backstage. Do you know how Houdini died? I have heard different stories Okay, before. well, this is what happened. Okay. He was backstage at the Princess Theater in Montreal getting ready for a show when a student from the local McGill University named J. Gordon Whitehead came up to him and asked him if it was true that he could take a punch in the stomach without feeling any pain. Houdini said, yes, it is true, but only when I'm able to tense up all my muscles beforehand. Only Houdini didn't get a chance to say all that because after he said yes, the kid punched him in the <laughs> oh stomach. God. With all of his force. That is how I thought, yeah. Yeah, so what this ended up doing was rupturing Houdini's appendix and giving him intense stomach pains for the next few days until he collapsed on stage. He finished the show, though, and then he later had to go to the hospital. And then on October 31st, Halloween, he died in a hospital in Detroit of peritonitis. His last words being, I'm tired of fighting. Oh, my God. This is a pretty sad story. Yeah. He was 52 years old. There's still debate today... Here we go. There's still debate today whether Whitehead was just some idiot student or if he was 
an assassin sent by the psychic mafia to get back at Houdini for smearing the reputation of spiritualists. I'm going to go with that one. I'm sorry I had to say that sentence. I feel like I'm descended from that whitehead kid. Like the <laughs> the intrinsic guilt. No, he went to a better university than we did. Bess, his wife, yeah. what Bess... His wife was, of course, greatly grieved, but as per their agreement, it was her duty to now try to make contact with him beyond the grave. I wasn't ready. To do this, she moved back to LA and actually moved back into the guest house in Laurel Canyon, where she always kept a candle burning next to the picture of her husband. And that is a confirmed fact that she did live there at this time. So it makes sense. Like, well, why would she go? Like, if he was probably there before. Starting on the first anniversary of her husband's death, Halloween, Bess took to the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood and held a seance to get in touch with Houdini, but nothing happened. She tried it again the next year on Halloween, the day he died, nothing happened. She kept doing this every year for 10 years, every Halloween night on the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel, but nothing ever happened. So on the 10th attempt, she gave up. Strangely enough, once they stopped the seance, a thunderstorm broke out and rained all over the roof of the hotel. And even stranger, it rained only on the roof of the hotel, like nowhere else in the city got wet. Really? Yeah. What year was this? This was 10 years after he died, so 1936, Okay. if my math fails me. Bess went home that night and she extinguished the candle next to the picture of her husband saying later, 10 years is long enough to wait for any man. Even though she gave up, others didn't and the torch of these seances was passed on to Walter B. Gibson, a magician and writer of The Shadow. Oh, wow. So the truth... Wow. The tradition was passed down through the years and there's still seances held every Halloween around the world to try to get in contact with Houdini. In 1935, the annual Pacific Coast Association of Magicians convention was in LA. So on July 24th, Bess got permission to have a party for the some 500 magicians in town for the convention at the mansion. And Mm -hmm. since it was Bess Houdini who staged the party, the newspaper started referring to that place as the Houdini Mansion and the name just stuck. So that's why it's referred to as the Houdini Mansion. Unfortunately, that's same year walker the owner of the mansion he died and the house was bought by a real estate broker named charles wilson and Bess could stay there no more it was time to kick out the venerable widow to make room for some genuine riffraff <laughs> the person wilson eventually decided to rent the mansion and its property out to was a guy named joe jeffers jeffers had come to la in the 30s and began holding christian revival meetings downtown uh, they were at the embassy auditorium before he was able to open up his kingdom temple at eighth and flower jeffers was part of the christian identity movement who believed that white Anglo-Saxon Protestants wasps were the lost tribe of Israel and that Jews were half human half demon creatures uh, I feel like he would have voted Trump anyways <laughs> they counted his vote <laughs> and needless to say he was also a white supremacist Jeffers and his second wife who he would go on to have four of those they had plans to burn down the temple for insurance money huh. but the authorities got tipped off about this so they had their apartment on Wilshire bugged and assigned an undercover cop to pose as a screenwriter interested in writing Jeffers' life story. So on March 20th, 1939, Jeffers threw a celebration party in the apartment for his new movie deal, and in the middle of the party, the undercover screenwriter yelled out, Mahatma Gandhi! (laughs) And a brigade of cops charged in and arrested everybody. The thing to yell. Is he gonna be starring as me? (laughs) He looks a little bit different than me. (laughs) And I don't like that. (laughs) So Jeffers and the rest of the crowd were naked at the time because this party was in fact a giant orgy. 
Jeffers blamed the communist Jews for his arrest and he went to court where footage of the arrest was shown and oh, was upsetting to yes, many yes, and very yes. interesting to many others. I got I, oh, I hope that's public LAPD record. footage. That it's I'm our gonna, right. It's, <laughs> enough time has passed. It's our right. <laughs> Release that footage. Eventually, the jury was persuaded that he was framed and he got off scot-free. He went about his merry preaching, but in 1944 was arrested for stealing his ex-wife's car, but got out after 15 months of a four-year sentence and in 1946 came up with his big idea. He decided that he was the reincarnation of Jesus. And he predicted Jesus. that LA Yeah, exactly. He predicted that LA <laughs> he predicted that LA would get destroyed in a nuclear holocaust in 1949 and that in 1952 England would sink into the ocean. Uh, what are your facts? Uh I got a feeling I got, <laughs> the Jews. <laughs> I got six hunches, idiot. As his home base for his enlightened teaching, he moved into the Houdini mansion and renamed it the Kingdom of Yahweh. That's he, optional. While he required a donation of $100,000 to live there, there were numerous complaints against him by the neighbors for their disruptive rituals and not long after about a dozen of his disciples sued him for fraud and in 1947 his parole was revoked and he was sent back to jail so that's his story after Jeffers the place was rented out to a wealthy heiress known alternatively as Eve the Green Virgin and the Green Madonna I hate Los Angeles sometimes (laughs) what do you mean what are you talking about? But we're Angelinos through and through. <laughs> Down to our hearts. The city, she loves me. <laughs> the city, she loves me. She's naked. She's having an orange. She's giving it to it hard to Orange County. Oh. So this lady was known as that because she would wear her hair wrapped up high, like in a in like a turban sort of. Like Why a not wear hive? Mm, sexier. And she wore a green see-through negligee and green scarf, and she would stand on the balcony during full moons. Mother Gaia. <laughs> Her real name may have been Lee Alden, who was a feminist poet and playwright who wrote a play about a disabled girl called the Atomic Apple. After her, That's Wilson. Cool, yeah, 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 I'd eat that. Oh, Eve eats in the Atomic Apple. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nuclear Holocaust. Got it. Yeah, man. Yes. <laughs> snap, 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 snap at that. Snap. The owner, Wilson, died in 1954, and the mansion was bought by Fania Pearson in 1958, who planned to turn it into a girls' school. But in 1959, the Willow Glen fires swept through the area and burned the entire property and everything around it. For insurance money yeah, the, <laughs> the canyon was strapped for cash the guest house was completely gone and all that stood standing was a carriage house and the caves and the underground tunnel which did exist mm-hmm. some brick walkways and the giant staircase in front that's wow. what was there and this is when things get creepy <laughs> they stayed ruins for decades and hippies and homeless people what's the difference <laughs> colon am i right <laughs> they moved into whatever nooks and crannies they could find in the ruins or the caves and the tunnel which did exist one such guy referred to himself as robin hood and believed that laurel canyon was sherwood forest oh, and he spoke in old english and was seen mostly by the children of nearby wonderland elementary who told tales of arrows shooting past people's heads nobody really knows who this guy was or what happened to him but it's interesting to note that to burst Vasquez, who supposedly hit his gold here in one of the caves that this guy was probably living in, he yeah. was also known as the Mexican Robin Hood. Interesting. Oh, that is interesting. And now for those specters. Does nobody in the canyons have a job? Like, does everybody... Well, they steal from the rich and they distribute it amongst themselves because they're the poor. Evenly. So now the specters we've all been waiting for. Like I said, the ruins were just sitting there for years and that giant staircase just stood there leading to nothing. But reports started coming in that late at night, people were seeing a dark-haired man in a dark suit standing at the top of those steps. <sighs> people aren't sure if this is the ghost of Houdini or the lover that was thrown off the balcony years earlier. Some also think it could be one of the bandits that was hanged or maybe even Robin Hood. Yeah. A ridiculous sentence I just said yet. Yeah. 
that again. People also claim to have seen a woman dressed in green roaming around those ruins, the yeah. green virgin. Yeah. Houdini lovers got wind of this and they started turning out in droves regularly to hold seances in the ruins at night to try to get in contact with their dead lover, Mama's Boy. As a result, the grounds were covered in pentagrams and all these occult symbols drawn all over the ruins and melted candles everywhere. Pearson, who was the owner, she had to hire security to keep people from coming onto the property trying to find ghosts all the time. When the place went up for sale in the 80s, the for sale sign kept getting destroyed and nobody could figure out how it was happening. But like I said, it wasn't just the ruins. The entire area seems to have this weird curse on it. Right across the street from the mansion at 2401 Laurel Canyon was a bungalow colony built in 1918 called Bungalow Land. No, it wasn't. What was it really called? (laughs) Bungalow Estates. (laughs) Bungalow Properties. Bungalow Town. (laughs) Bungalow Buddies. The Bungalow Borough. In one of these bungalow homes lived an early silent film star named Bessie Love. No relation to Buddy Love, my favorite Eddie Murphy character. The legend was that on the very spot of land that her bungalow was on, some treasure seekers came to the area trying to find the gold that Vasquez had hid, but he found them and he killed them right there on that spot that then became her house. So because of this, Bessie would regularly hear moaning and men's voices in her place. Uh, Sometimes they weren't invited. (laughs) Doors would open and they would close on their own. Lights would go on and off. There were cold spots, the usual sort of thing. But the big biggest thing happened a friend was staying in her living room one night she woke up middle of the night she heard a man's voice looked around nobody's there then all of a sudden a man walked through the wall into the living room adjusted his cowboy hat and then went into the kitchen not even a howdy wipe your feet it was the worst sleepover party in LA history (laughs) the guy who lived there in the 90s once went outside to get something and he had the front door slammed behind him and deadbolt shut so he couldn't get back in also right over there at the intersection of Lookout Mountain and Laurel Canyon Uh sometimes late at night an old fashioned carriage pulled by two white horses it silently roars down the hill turns left onto Laurel Canyon and then disappears it's even been the cause of a few car accidents another haunted house right there is at 2451 Laurel Canyon. Being a mansion right next to the supposed Houdini mansion, this mm-hmm. place has gotten lumped in with the legend and is often confused as being the Houdini mansion, but it isn't. Don't be confused. This one was built in 1925 by a guy named Richard Burkell, and some say that Errol Flynn was said to live here in the 30s. Coincidentally, Errol Flynn Robin played Hood. Robin Hood. Yeah. There's also no concrete proof of that, but this place burned down in the 59 fire as well, but it was rebuilt and eventually bought by music producer Rick Rubin, who <laughs> turns it into a recording studio and refers to it as the mansion and it's not immune to the cursed hauntings of the area either. Bands and musicians like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Jay-Z, Slipknot, Marilyn Manson, System of a Down, Audio Slave, the Mars Volta, Maroon 5, and Lincoln Park. Which one of those don't belong in that group? <laughs> uh, a couple of them. They don't belong in society, I'll say that. <laughs> no, but I love Audio Slave. <laughs> I would like Rage Against Machine without all the political emotion that carried it. I like that. We're talking about System of a Down. <laughs> so they all recorded there and they all had their own strange experiences in this house. The rumors go that this house used to be used to give illegal abortions and that a bunch of kids died of drugs and other means here at punk parties in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. One time they also found a guy dressed in a tuxedo hanging inside one of the rooms. Apparently his girlfriend had denied his marriage proposal. It happens. The system of a down guy said that at 4am every day his amp tubes tubes, would start acting weird at the 
same time really? every day. The guy from Mars Volta refused to go into the bell tower. Slipknot lived there while they were recording and said that they would literally get pushed around by things, really? like physically pushed. Doors would open up at the same time every night in the middle of the night. The thermostat would go up. The band would meet up every morning and swap stories of what weird things happened to them the night before. Really? The drummer said he was in the basement doing his laundry when he felt something pass through him. <sighs> kidney stones <laughs> he never went down there again and to this day he still hasn't done his laundry in 1991 the red hot chili peppers recorded their album blood sex blood sugar sex magic, magic sex sugar can i borrow <laughs> a lump of sex while they were recording they all lived there except the drummer who refused because he was convinced that the place was haunted <laughs> one picture they took for the album there they say has a ghost in it in the form of an orb floating around anthony kiedis's head really? In reality, it was just his ego. But um, cha 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 da cha cha chinga da cha. Go on. John Frusciante would masturbate in front of the ghosts. Go back. <laughs> Scariest of all in this general area was that Frank Zappa had a cabin right over there also. About that. In 1968, the city ordered the ruins of the Houdini Mansion raised because they had become an eyesore, but they had been around for so long that people tried to get them preserved as a landmark. That movement failed. In 1980, but ghosts. <laughs> in 1989, Pearson finally put the place up for sale for $2.5 million, listing it as the Harry Houdini estate, but a Houdini historian named Manny Weltman threatened to sue them for making a false claim because there was no proof, so they decided to advertise it. It's just known as the Harry Houdini estate. Yeah. It was sold to a guy named Mark Jacobs, not that one, <laughs> but then it went back up for sale in 1999 and was sold to a magic lover and antiques dealer named Patrick Williams that one for one million dollars seven hundred seventy seven thousand seven hundred seventy seven dollars and seventy seven cents that's ridiculous then it was sold again in 2006 to a guy named jose luis nazar who turned it into a five acre property worth six million dollars as of 2015 the two-story mansion is available to be stayed in the top floor costs sixteen thousand five hundred dollars a month the bottom goes for seven thousand five hundred or you could just spend the night there for over a thousand dollars or you could have your wedding there then make your sex life disappear <laughs> <laughs> get out of that get out of that ball and chain. Hmm. 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 I should start a column. That tunnel under Laurel Canyon, which does exist, is still there, but it's sealed off, but the hill that the old guest house was on has mostly been leveled when they expanded Laurel Canyon. And that's the Houdini mansion. Do you think that we can go on that old antique elevator and it not work because it was made in nineteen oh one or whatever and it it's works possible? Jeez Louise. Don't you believe in magic? In a young person's heart? Any gender because genders don't exist anymore. And good. And good riddance to them. I'm tired of pink only being for girls. I'm sick of having to pull up a toilet seat. I want to do duty in the shower. Something completely unrelated. <laughs> I want to do duty in a Target. I want no one to stop me. Girls can do it. I see them do it all the time. <laughs> I want it to be okay for me to not wear diapers when I'm in a <laughs> diarrhea pit. On Benedict Canyon Drive in 1959. <laughs> right into it. Right into it. Right after diarrhea pit. Speaking of diarrhea pit. On Benedict Canyon Drive in 1959, Superman killed himself. No. Took a more ac- kryptonite capsule. <laughs> more accurately, the actor who played the men from Krypton in the 1950s TV show titled The Adventures of Superman, an actor named George Reeves, committed suicide. But to all the young fans of the show who adored the character, oh the death of the actor seemed like the same thing. It was quite a blow. Which I never really thought about before, but like yeah, that's being a kid r- in like the 50s. How do you explain that? Yeah. But I thought he could dodge bullets. Uh, Not one. <laughs> he could dodge bullets from other people. <laughs> George Reeves was born George Kiefer Brewer in Iowa in 1914. 
2018. His parents were Helen Leisher and a druggist named Don Brewer. His parents divorced shortly after his birth, and his mother took George out of Iowa to Kentucky for a short period before landing in Pasadena, California, hmm. where his aunt lived. There she met little, a, that little old lady from Pasadena. It's Superman's mom. <laughs> that little old lady <laughs> from Krypton. <laughs> there she met a vineyard owner named Frank Bessel, and she remarried, and he adopted a three-year-old George. Besselow was a salesman for Bohemian Distributing and Alley Brewing, and in around 1939, apparently owned the North End Liquor Store in Manhattan Beach. Frank was a good father figure to George, taking on responsibilities of being the biological father, even though he was not. But George didn't know that. Around 1932... Just like Superman. Just like Superman. Around 1932, Frank and Helen's marriage fell apart, and he moved on. Their separation occurred while George, George Besselow, which he took his adopted father's name... They hired the right guy to play Superman. Exactly. <laughs> Their separation occurred while George was away with relatives. His mother would later tell George at the age of 18 that Frank had shot himself. I have no idea why she would tell him that. I've read different things about his mother and... Well, you can vote now. <laughs> I've read different things about his mother and some people have just claimed that she found it convenient to eliminate like both her husbands to save her social standing <laughs> and to draw her son closer to her. Like she was very over-possessive of him. He, of course, was devastated. Around this time, he graduates from high school and enrolls at Pasadena Junior College. George was hoping to become a physician, but his low grades kept him from moving forward in that direction. He also considered becoming a boxer professionally because he had the build of a fighter. He was like six foot two. He was like yeah, a stocky guy. Yeah, he had a guy. weird old strongman body. Yeah, old strongman body, which yeah. it, like it's not fat. It's not it's muscular. Not like the, yeah, it's not yeah. The, like the rock, but it's, it's not, not like uh, it's not like Stan Laurel, he's not, um, Hardy, whichever's the fat one. He's not like um, Fred Mertz. I was going to say Fred Mertz, but I didn't want to say that because I was then going to reference him being in I Love Lucy. Yeah, <laughs> but... His yeah, it's like my butts. butts. His mother talked him out of doing boxing professionally, although he kept it up as a hobby. Mother knows best. George then became involved in... Just ask Harry Houdini. <laughs> George then became involved in music and acting, joining an acapella choir, playing guitar, performing in school plays. In 1935, when he was 21, he joined one of the America's most prestigious theaters, the Pasadena Community Playhouse, which is, I didn't know it was that big, but it, like it's yeah. world-renowned, apparently. Yeah. And he started appearing in productions very quickly. Over the next four years, he appeared in like a dozen Playhouse productions. All this stage time got him noticed by a talent agent and this led to one of the biggest roles in his life 1939's Gone with the Wind he plays one of the Goonie Tarleton twins that Scarlet fancies he did? yeah he's one of those red hair goons I've never seen it before but I've seen parts of it and I had to see it I've seen George Reeves face enough times to be able to hate George Reeves <laughs> and I saw him with the red hair I'm like that's not anyone I know I don't <laughs> know him Superman was a confederate doesn't it make sense a little bit though <laughs> he gets a contract with warner brothers and changes his name to george reeves reeves i have no idea why he also around this time gets hitched to a fellow actor from the playhouse named eleanora needles <laughs> things are starting to look up sort of he landed several follow-up roles look uh, up in the sky it's a career <laughs> it's tv it's depression <laughs> <laughs> lifelong depression oh he landed several follow-up roles but nothing was really putting george reeves in anyone's mouth you know his best role according to many was in the 1943 film don't make a joke like that after the john holmes and all this <laughs> all this too much christian orgies <laughs> he was in a movie called so proudly we hail with claude colbert but still wasn't catching when he wasn't mm. getting that role so it's now it's 1943 and one of the world wars is going on uh, two uh, i can't keep track reeves serves a few few years in the theatrical unit of the army air corps there he starts appearing in training films and stuff so while george was performing on broadway in the army's production of the winged victory someone came to visit george reeves now this is where some of the facts kind of get fuzzy some say that his mother told george that frank his adopted father had killed himself and others say that she told george that his biological father don brewer had killed himself i can't really i've read both before personally i think it was frank Besselow. anyways frank Besselow, who george thought was dead came to visit him on 
space. And George, who thought he was dead, was like, what are you doing here? And also at the same time... Classic stage acting. At the same time, he learned that Bessel wasn't his biological father. Wow. Same day. Either his original father came... Which would shock you more? That I'm here? But also, you shouldn't care that I'm here because I'm not a biological father. That or his biological father came and in finding out that, oh, you're not dead, but also that guy that that was my real father is not my real father. One of those two things happened, but I think that the Frank guy showed up. Needless to say, he was psychologically rocked after this. Reeves didn't speak much to his mother throughout much of the 40s, and at the end of that decade, 1949... Silent era. Here's my impression of him talking to his mom. (laughs) Bye-bye, mother. (laughs) At the end of the decade, 1949, he and his wife, Eleonora, get a divorce. She left him for another man, a show business attorney named Edward Rose. His career also, at that point, starts to slowly dwindle down thanks to his time away at the military. All this mm-hmm. advanced stuff in movies means that he's not advancing with it. He then turned to the most degrading form of entertainment, television. No. Television. What, Big with Ralph Cramden and, and and the rest? And Beaver Cleaver? <laughs> Beaver Cleaver? <laughs> well, he's on Petticoat Junction. In 1951, he was cast in a pilot some kiddie program called Superman and the Mole Men, based on the first superhero comic, which was a sensation. The mm-hmm. pilot got pulled and 26 segments were shot shot uh that year for 1952 for the tv show the adventures of superman which like the comic books were an enormous hit every like kids and adults loved superman it was superman isn't that so weird that these button-up middle-aged men in the 50s were like enjoying these not cartoons but kids shows just as much just as as much as kids yeah their dumb little kids were it's funny to me that like they were pulling those ec horror comics away from children but like soldiers in world war ii were like we need more of those comics (laughs) their days were shooting nazis and they're like oh you know what we need is a comic with a bunch of corpses in it. We'd really like that. <laughs> Something we can relate to. So on the show, Reeves showed off his ability to play the strong heroic type in Kal-El, aka Superman, and also the mousy square type with Clark Kent. Unfortunately, either role the he... two extremes of a man. Either role he played made the actor miserable. <laughs> he was dissatisfied with his career and felt uncomfortable making a living in what he called a union suit. And truly as great as the role was, and to this day... So, is he talking about Superman's uniform? <laughs> yeah, he's talking about... It's not a uniform. That, u- that okay? teamster... It's, <laughs> uniform. it's not a uniform. <laughs> uh, well, it's a little uh, Cosplay. Yeah. What is this? Uh, you dressed up in a little uh, tights. America's greatest teamster. Yep. <laughs> and as truly great as his role was to this day, that's how we remember George Reeves. He couldn't really obviously move past it. He was typecast very quickly as the man of Krypton. It certainly did not help that he made several personal appearances in character to children's hospitals, to TV events, on an episode of I Love Lucy. To not little Ricky's birthday to, party. Yeah, not as George Reeves. He came as Superman. Yeah. He was always Superman. Come 1953, George Reeves lands a part in the classic film from here to eternity it's the movie where Deborah. Kurt, yeah yeah but you don't you don't see him as much because he plays one of the kamikaze pilots or not the kamikaze pilots or one of the planes he plays a plane the studio <laughs> had to cut several scenes out of george reeves uh, apparently because during test screenings the audience was laughing shouting there's superman uh-huh uh, like I just did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it sounds like an American audience, all right. <laughs> yeah, so they cut some scenes out because people couldn't handle seeing well, the actor who played. It happens to this day, really. Yeah. So at this point, he is completely distraught. In the 50s, he begins an on-again, off-again relationship with a married woman who is 10 years older named Tony Mannix. Her husband, unfortunately, is a man named Edgar Eddie Mannix, who is officially an MGM studio executive. And at some point, I can't really figure out when, he was the vice president of Lowell's Theater Incorporated. Unfortunately, Mannix was referred to as the Bulldog and was the right-hand man to Louis B. May of MGM. More importantly, any Mannix was a studio fixer. Oh boy. More on that later. Those existed? Yeah. Well, it's 1959. Him and that woman he's having an affair with were not together, although he is currently living in a... Did ho- he like opera? 
You know, he was a fan of it. He was currently living in a home on Benedict Canyon that she had bought for him. 1579 Benedict Canyon Drive, a small, modest home, which is close to Clearview Drive, to give context. At the time, Reeves was engaged to yet another actress and socialite party girl, Lenore Lemon. The two were scheduled to get married on June 19th in Mexico. That didn't happen. <laughs> Come the night of June 16th, 1959, Reeves and Lemon were in, and there was a house guest over named Robert Condon who was working on a story about Reeves. Condon was staying in one of the three bedrooms downstairs. Reeves excused himself around midnight and went upstairs to his bedroom, leaving Lemon downstairs with Condon. Around one in the morning, another couple, William Bliss and Carol Van Ronkel, dropped in for drinks. Lemon and Reeves, both being alcoholics, this was usual, but on this night, their late night irritated Reeves, who came downstairs in a bathrobe, and he shouted that he was in no mood for a company and ordered them to leave. Bliss would tell the police later that Reeves was drunk, and the two of them got into this argument, which quickly they squashed the beef. Around 1.30, though, Reeves once again excused himself to go to bed, and Robert Condon, the house guest, says that Reeves seemed despondent. Not suicidal, necessarily, just like mm -hmm. bummed, like cosmically bummed. <laughs> Lemon later told police that as Reeves went upstairs... Supremely sad. Lemon later told police that Reeves went upstairs, and Lemon casually said to Bliss, in a moment you will hear a gun. Ha ha, right? Oh, funny. Guess what? <laughs> At that point... You do great Foley work. <laughs> they heard a drawer open up from upstairs, and then Lemon, again, on this great sense of humor streak she was on, said, and now you'll hear a shot. <laughs> She, of course, was just playing around, trying to downplay this theatrics and up the mood. Oh. Reeves would frequently get drunk and play Russian roulette with himself, which is not how you play Russian roulette. What? But uh, she never took it seriously. While Lemon was downstairs mocking her fiancé's morose mood, a gunshot is heard. Bliss went upstairs and found Reeves lying on the bed. Oh, my God. According to Ali Corner's report, Reeves had shot himself in the right temple just above the ear with a German Luger, which was found lying on the floor between his feet. The bullet passed through his head and lodged in the ceiling. There was no note. Superman had killed himself. Or did he? Please say he didn't. Police found two more bullets fired from the same gun in the bedroom floor under the rug, and one of the bullets mm -hmm. had been lodged downstairs in the fireplace paneling. Lemon would tell police later that she had fired that bullet accidentally, which was not related to his death. It would happen like a couple days before, but the other bullet, the third bullet, couldn't be explained. Many people have trouble hmm. believing that Reeves committed suicide. His mother, for one, had spoken to him earlier that day and reported that he seemed in high spirits. He was getting married in three days and had a honeymoon planned. He had appearances and gigs coming up. Career rives. Reeves was scheduled to make appearances in Australia, which would have raked in 20 thousand dollars for him the studio was planning on more superman episodes which again promised income he didn't like it but he was also planning a boxing match against a lightweight champion archie moore his actor pal gig young who you may remember from the walking distance episode of twilight zone he also yes. plays the dance organizer from they shoe horses don't they himself who met an absurd fate said that reeves was a clean guy in no way capable of bumping himself off another actor friend alan ladd who had been in film noir flicks like the blue dahlia and the glass key had commented that reeves had never been happier in his life ladd himself overdosed on pills five years later. They believe that was a suicide. Hooray for Hollywood. Mm. Let's get back to Eddie Mannix, the MGM fixer. To do this, we have to go back to our second episode ever, the very first Creepy Christmas Haunted Hanukkah. Now, the most famous of the Canyon incidents was covered in the episode. That's, again, Sharon Tate and her house full of guests get uh, visited by the Manson goons. They get on bumped Sierra off, off, as some in Hollywood would put it. Off of Benedict Canyon. She had a premonition of her death as well as her close friend Jay Sebring when the two of them lived off of Benedict Canyon on Eden Drive, the former home of Jean Harlow and her husband husband Paul Byrne. Mm -hmm. There in that home, Tate saw the ghost of Paul Byrne, or who she thought was Paul Byrne, ghost, because Paul Byrne killed himself in that house. Or did he? Please say he did. There was a lot of speculation over whether his death was a suicide or a murder. The butler who found him called MGM studio execs before he reported to the police, and they had a few hours with the scene before <laughs> the cops came. Apparently, and of course, unsourced, Louis B. Mayer brought in the fixer, Eddie Mannix, oh boy. to stage the <laughs> scene to look like it was a suicide after another celebrity, possibly Jean Harlow, or his first wife, had murdered him. That was in 1932. Imagine. 20, imagine. 24 G years. Jean Harlow murdered 
Paul Byrne and Eddie Mannix fixed the scene and then 24 years later had to do it again. <laughs> Some of Mannix's other duties include, which I um, have to read a book on this guy. I know that a very fantastic podcast, you must remember this, did an episode on him that I have to listen mm, to that. Not officially endorsed by this podcast. He fixed a hit and run vehicular manslaughter committed by Clark Gable and had John Houston, director of the Maltese Falcon, take the blame. Houston was never charged due to a lack of evidence. Also, again, speculation, Gable sexually assaulted actress Loretta Young. What? Yeah, and when she became pregnant, he fixed it so she she would adopt her own daughter instead of take on the scandal. This was, uh... God, frankly, he does not give a damn. <laughs> this was a deathbed confession a of Young's. Confederate monster. <laughs> Confederate monster. I've been saying that for years. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was in Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. I didn't think... I didn't make sure that connection. Was. Wow. He scraped up every copy of a porno film that was apparently starring Joan Crawford and destroyed them. That, that's just a view to name his mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. Right, do the police... Do the have uh, rights to that? <laughs> I want to see the subject of Mommy's Dearest <laughs> get it on. Open up the Disney vault. <laughs> when it comes to the night of Reeves' death, there is a rumor that Mannix ordered a hit on Reeves when he found out his wife was not only having an affair with him, but she had bought him a house. <laughs> Other reports speculate that Tony Mannix, Eddie's wife, killed Reeves when she found out that he was going to get married to a much younger woman, so she came and killed Reeves. What if both of them got... They reconciled their relationship? Like both. Let's both get there. Sometimes before his death, he reported that he was receiving something like 20 threatening phone calls from what he imagined was someone hired by Tony Mannix. Also strange is that Mannix herself had received the same type of phone calls, but you can't really believe that if she's the one behind it. Mm. There had also been three instances when someone was trying to run George Reeves off the road, almost killing him. Apparently at one point cutting his brakes from his car. Mm. He was looking at Tony the entire time like, I'm pretty sure you're doing this. (laughs) A friend of Tony Mannix named Edward Losey of Beverly Hills Publicist had commented that as her health was declining she admitted to a priest that she and her husband both conspired to kill george reeves and they had thugs come in and kill reeves the obvious question though is how how would this whacking or a hit take place in a house full of people other than reeves there are three other witnesses you can't pay them off and a secret can't last along between three people for that long so it's kind of a weird thing his almost widow lenore lemon spent the rest of her days in new york in a drunken stupor and as one article put it drank herself into alcoholic dementia <laughs> Uh, Tony Mannix for years kept his shaving utensils and lotions and even built an altar in her house dedicated to him with a crucifix and candles and a picture of Reeves. But did she need to go that far to remember him when she could just hang around that place where he died and wait? Oh, no. The people who lived in the Benedict Canyon house later were entertaining guests one evening when they began to hear noises coming from the upstairs bedroom, previously oh, George Reeves' room. What's that noise? You won't believe some of the stuff they heard. No. Including the Superman theme song. Shut up. They heard it. No. There are claims that people heard. But the Superman. Not that song. Okay, not, yeah, But yeah. the one from the show, which is not that far off, really. I heard like a weird version at work today because I couldn't raise the volume. I so. went into it telephone booth and <laughs> really that is so weird one night the people who lived in the house after were entertaining guests and they went to the room and the room that was nice and tidy before was now a mess it looked like it had been ransacked uh, when they returned downstairs all the drinks they had been sipping on in the living room on the coffee table were now in the kitchen he likes to keep a clean house that's why he got mad in the first place (laughs) Uh, their German shepherd was constantly barking threateningly then cowering one night the dog was going crazy and they opened up the door he was barking at and uh, the bed had moved from across the room not in front of them but the bed was just in another spot so it didn't like Pee Wee's Playhouse (laughs) 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 Betty some nights they were awakened by the sound of a gunshot in their home with no smoking gun wow they also smelled gunshot like Mm. gunpowder or whatever scent (laughs) scent of a gun vanilla scent of a gun scent of a gun the incident that caused one couple to move out was one summer evening at the witching hour 3 a.m they saw the ghost of george reeves dressed as superman appear in the living room 
And they were out of there. I would say that's cool, but no. It's kind of not. Not at 3 a.m. No. <sighs> what? <laughs> Can this wait until morning? <laughs> the investigation into Reeves' death has been depicted in the film Hollywood Land, which I hear is not very good, and mm. the adventures of Eddie Mannix inspired Hail Caesar from the Coen brothers. Really? Yeah. The ghost of George Reeves has inspired people to look for other homes. <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah. That got me scared. That That's pretty freaky. I'm more freaked out by Eddie Mannix. It's his yeah. job as a fixer. He's still out there. <laughs> Who knows what he's doing? Who knows what he's fixing? Pipes? <laughs> he looked like Mario. <laughs> it's a me, Eddie. <laughs> Here's our last story of the night. We're back away from ghosts if you've got if that's not your thing if you don't believe in ghosts i hope you believe in aliens oh n- <laughs> no you know i do ghost aliens time for my final tale which i'll call topanga i hardly ufo yet <laughs> i'm gonna chatter my teeth the entire time <laughs> Topanga Canyon, the valley's back way to Malibu. Scenic by day, creepy by night. Strange things have always happened in this woodsy, secluded part of town, but one of the most common reported things have been alien encounters. Oh boy, oh golly. Sightings were reported as early as the 1940s, not long after the infamous Battle of L.A. Mm -hmm. Listen to the podcast that I forgot. (laughs) Sugar. You'll never forget it. A lot of this is just kind of like a laundry list of... There's spooky. no, There's no... Yeah, yeah. Just different encounters people have had. Is it spooky if there are aliens? If you see like an alien thing, is it spooky? Is um, spooky related to ghosts? I'll explain to you some of the feelings people had. And we'll talk if they're spooky Joyfulness. <laughs> glee. Confusion. Bewilderment. <laughs> so the earliest actual story I have is from March 22nd, 1953. Two women were living together. Hmm. hmm. Strange. The Kentons are an odd place. <laughs> Anything goes away from the prying eyes of your pester. So two women were living together in a cabin in the canyon, and one night they were woken up by a bright light outside, and the next thing they knew, it was two hours later. What, ju- what just happened? They were freaked out, and they ran out of the cabin. Not a good move. No. It said that's where the light was coming from. <laughs> it said don't go into the light, Caroline. Speaking to is it spooky or not? It said that if you're in a UFO type situation and you get a feeling of being watched or threatened, or if you see a UFO in one place and then all of a sudden it's in another place and you're left with just this sense of fear that's a sign that you may have been abducted and there's a missing gap of time in your memory so it's just sort of a kind of dread almost so these two women that this happened to they went into hypnotherapy to try to make sense of what had happened one didn't remember anything but for the rest of her life she would be bothered with this feeling of being watched by something that wanted her to follow it somewhere like she couldn't place it but the other lady in therapy recalled a memory from that missing gap of time of thin human like figures dressed in black coming through their locked windows and taking them to a Saturn-shaped vessel outside and then returning them to their home on a beam of light. So that's what happened. Three years later, the second lady who didn't remember anything was with another woman and that woman's baby and they were driving home in the canyon, but it was late and they were tired. So they pulled over to sleep for a little bit and to let the traffic die down. But a little bit later, they were woken up and their car was surrounded by a bright light and they were completely paralyzed. And eventually the paralysis lifted and the friend with the baby went into regression therapy to try to cope with this and recalled a memory of two tall, thin beings dressed in black coming out of a bright object circling their car and being very interested in her baby before a third thing from the ship called to them and they left and then the paralysis was lifted. So around the same time, there was another female couple who had a similar situation of being surrounded by a bright light, paralyzed, and under hypnosis therapy, one of them recalled she was taken into a room and examined by beings who wanted her to go with them somewhere, but she resisted them and she was returned home. So it's possible that the people in all these stories and another one I have coming up might have just been suffering from sleep paralysis, mm-hmm. but all of them 
all these people yeah. had sleep paralysis in the same area. Yeah, I mean, what is it? Some sort of a government conspiracy? You can see him at the Santa Monica Pier. So the next reported event happened on an afternoon in 1961 or 62 when a mom and her $2 and her $2 bills, $2 bills, she just wouldn't let go of them. I'll never spend you. Her two daughters, they were driving home from the market in Topanga when they saw two or three large metallic objects hovering across the canyon from them over Entrada Road. They had no idea what they were looking at, so they got out of the car to investigate, and after watching them just hover there for like 15 minutes, one of them started to move. So the mom was like, all right, we're leaving. So she gathered her kids back in the car, and then the next thing they knew, they were home, and none of them remembered getting there. Oh my God. Then in 73 or 74, some high school kids, and I do mean high, they, yeah. were, they were driving on Santa Maria, Santa Maria. Santa Maria. <laughs> they were driving on Santa Maria Road and saw some... Saw some saucers. They saw some saucers. They saw some lights hovering yet again over Entrada. So also in 1974, a woman and her friend were watching the stars near the Calacamp campgrounds when one of the stars suddenly started zigzagging around and the entire sky got really bright for a little bit. Then in the summer that same year, around 10 p.m., a couple more kids saw an oval-shaped bright light moving low in the sky, giving off this low humming noise. Mm -hmm. In 76, some guys got their car stuck off-roading and they saw lights in the sky moving around on the way back, on their walk back. In February of 1982, a group of teenagers in the canyon saw one large object in the sky with smaller dots of light shooting off of it. The large object then went over a house and showered it in a bright light. Also in 1982, around 1 a.m., one night around the Mulholland Drive part of Topanga, some guys were looking, they were just lying there looking out at the stars, and then they realized that a triangular pattern of bright white light started moving, mm -hmm. and they were give off this like greenish orange, red and blue light when they moved, and they were completely silent, and then the lights came at them, and then left them, and then they just had this feeling that they were being watched. Jeez. <laughs> so many incidents of like similar things. Well, it, it's leading up to this big sort of event. One summer night, fire in the sky. <laughs> One this entire time I've been thinking about fire in the sky, <laughs> oh, and sorry. I'm going to go home and yeah. watch it. This didn't happen. Sorry. One summer night in 1986, a group of star-like objects were seen circling each other and then they sped off. In the first week of January 1991, a woman was sleeping in her home in the canyon when she was woken up feeling like there was something in her room. And she was completely paralyzed yet again and she saw a small figure at the foot of her bed and she couldn't move. She couldn't scream or do anything. And then the figure came up to her and cut off a piece of her hair and then went back to the foot of her bed where she was probed, not anally, mind you, and then it left. After a little bit, she felt like you know, she could move again. She yeah. just felt drugged, Jeez. like just violated and drugged. Yeah. Stuff was happening in Topanga Canyon so often that one couple who had lived there a while said that they were visited so often that they could predict when something would show up at night. Like, oh, it's... It's one of those nights. No. <laughs> Drop trout. <laughs> and then the big wave started. The night... Nanu, nanu. Kawa, nanu. The night of June 14th, 1992. It was a lunar eclipse that night. Or was it? At around 8 p.m., two cars left the Gladstones restaurant in Malibu and they started going up to Panga on their way home. Not long after, a call came in to the local sheriff's station. A guy said he was driving up to Panga with his girlfriend from the restaurant at the area where the canyon gets deep when a bright light showed up above his car and it started giving off a humming noise. And then he felt his car got lifted off the ground. Huh. And then the next thing he remembered, his car was back on the ground and the light was gone. And the officer said, hey, that's weird, but I don't know what, to, you know, 
what can I do? I can't help you there. What's time to them? (laughs) Then the driver of the second car that left that restaurant called in not long after this and said that he was driving up the canyon where it gets deep, just past the Sassafras Nursery, and was followed by three bright objects in the sky, so he got out of his car to look at them, but they flew away. The officer thought maybe there's something in the food that night in the restaurant. Then a third call came in from a college professor who lived in the canyon saying he was woken up in his home just a mile north of the Sassafras Nursery by a bright light shining from above giving off a humming noise. Then about an hour later, a fourth call came in. Someone was driving south in the canyon and it had been chased by bright flying lights. Oh my God. And these were just the phone calls that the sheriff got. That same night, there were reports by other people all over the canyon. One guy was driving and saw about 3,000 feet up a huge bar of light that was launching off smaller disks of light. Others reported seeing this large bar as well. One person saw a bright yellow white light zooming south to north. Lights and objects were seen over Henry Ridge. And all on that first night, 13 people claimed that they saw something in the sky, all with the common theme that they're bright lights. <laughs> they could have been helicopters, only they moved in ways that a helicopter couldn't move and the only noise they were making was this humming noise. And thus began the Topanga Canyon UFO wave that lasted for over two years. What? Here's more of the laundry list. On June 20th, that same year, 2.45am, almost the witching hour, yeah. a couple was awakened yet again by a bright light outside their home. They looked outside and they saw a bright humming object about the size of two or three cars in the field across the street just hovering 20 feet off the ground. They said it was a saucer or a cylinder shape, depending on what angle you looked at it from. Yeah. And the wife said that before they had been woken up, she had been dreaming that she was in a white room surrounded by strangers. Oh, and no. a few days after this, a woman was driving through the canyon around 11.15 p.m. when a huge flash of light from the east filled the sky and would stay on and then go off and then come on and then go off. And she said the light was so intense that you could feel it. Like oh, what you could touch I... this light. This happened again a few nights later and then again the next week to the same person. On July 5th, the Topanga Messenger released an article on that first night of occurrences which spurred a lot of other people to come forward and admit some of the things that had happened to them in the canyon as well. Yeah. This article was rebutted in the July 9th LA Times in a mocking article uh-huh. written by none other than Steve Harvey. Yep. The comedian talk show? Apparently talk he show. used to have a column. He used to have a column really? in the LA Times. Steve Harvey was then rebutted by a mocking article written by the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> but Steve Harvey's skepticism or not, the aliens were not stopping. On July 14th... If Steve Harvey can't stop you, then I don't know what's going on. Hey, try the sheriff, maybe. <laughs> on July 14th, the couple who saw the object in the field across from their house were with some friends, and they saw colorful moving lights in the sky, and then they were visited again that night at their house. And Topanga was the hub, but other things were happening around the city as well. There were a lot of similar sightings in Malibu and other parts of the Santa Monica Mountains. On July 15th of that year, a UFO was spotted over NBC in Burbank. Bank, and on August 5th, an airplane taken off from LAX almost crashed into one. Wow, really? Back in Topanga on August 16th, two guys were driving on the PCH in Malibu. They saw five or six diamond-shaped objects flying over the canyon, but these were not lit up. Then on September 22nd, an even stranger thing happened. Around midnight, this is really freaky. Around midnight, a guy was driving north, about a mile south of Old Topanga Canyon Road, when he was coming up on a spot of the road where there had been this fatal car accident several years earlier. And as he came up to the spot, he started getting this overwhelming sense of deja vu of the accident even though he wasn't there and he didn't know anybody that was a part of it and then this fireball flew down from the sky and landed on the spot of the accident and then he saw the wrecked vehicles and the bodies of the two people killed what yeah really weird on march 7th 1993 a woman was in her home in topanga with her baby who was born just a few days before when a bright star-shaped reddish bluish object showed up on the horizon the woman watched it and she couldn't shake the feeling that it was interested in her baby and then this light continued 
continued to appear there for the next three nights in a row, just watching her. <laughs> in May, about a dozen oval-shaped objects were seen moving through the sky one night. The military seemed to have taken an interest in what was going on because one night in September of 1993, a guy said he saw cars zooming dangerously fast down the road, and then there were three military helicopters mm-hmm. hovering over a part of the canyon where there had been several sightings in the past. And then that same night, he also saw this bright silver saucer-shaped object kind of moving away lower in the canyon from that area. <laughs> in October of that year, a woman's horse got this weird wound on it. Not a big deal. Horses are clumsy and vulnerable. Dummies. Of course, of course. <laughs> but a month later, on November 21st, at around 9 p.m., there were helicopters yet again searching the area. And then the next day, she went to check on her horses and she found patches of hair on some of them were missing and wounds on a few of them. And the weird thing was, these wounds were exactly the same as the ones she found on her horse the month before. And that one from the month before wasn't healing. Like, it's still... Wow. It was just like this open wound. But it didn't end there. January 16th, 1994, the day before the North earthquake, a couple saw a large transparent object floating above the canyon. More lights were seen in February. In March, another large object was seen with about 10 escorts around it. In July 1994, the TV show Encounters came to the canyon to investigate what was going on, and they claimed to have caught some lights on camera, but I couldn't find that footage. And then, this is the scariest thing by far. It happened one night in November 1994. This lady's driving down the canyon at night, uh-huh. and then there's this sheep crossing the road. She, she stops, let it pass. I'm not going to run down a sheep. But the more she looked at it, she started to notice that its head was a little too round and low on its body, and its hair kind of looked like how a dirty sheep would look, yeah. but as she described it, it looked more like densely packed fog, and the way it moved wasn't right. It was going like it was on a spring, and then it looked at her, and it had brown lips and no eyeballs, and you could see straight through its head, just two open holes in its head and then it just shuffled off the road and she sped home and then a few months later she had an encounter with this same thing in the same exact spot this weird creature walking across the road with lips and no eyes yeah that that really i did not like reading that yeah so this was the wave of topanga encounters between 1992 and 94 people still see things there to this day but not nearly as often the aliens seem to have developed a taste for pizza dipped in ranch dressing and moved south to orange county They want to be near all the uh, packed suns. (laughs) They love suns. They heard that the sun is down south. The question is, why did they choose Topanga Canyon in the first place? The most not ridiculous of these reasons is because it's a huge rural area next to a major city that any visiting aliens could use as a base to hide in while they're observing the city. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, this all makes sense. Yeah, total sense. Places like that tend to have a lot of reported sightings like the Hudson Valley, which is just north of New York City. Like they've had a lot of alien reports also. Some people you might meet at the local library believe that the area (laughs) off the coast by Topanga Canyon is the location of an Atlantis-type civilization that was swallowed by the ocean many years ago called Lemuria, or Moo. Moo! (laughs) Some people claim that there is the most powerful vortex of geoelectromagnetic energy over Topanga Canyon that's attracting aliens. Preston Dennett wrote a book all about the 92 to 94 wave. Something that stuck out to me, though, is that the majority of the people most affected and harassed in these encounters were women, which leads me to believe that the aliens are Trump supporters. They are also from Mars. <laughs> I once heard that Danny Elfman wrote the theme song to The Simpsons on his way home, and he used to live in Topanga Canyon, so the Simpsons theme is, song is alien music. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it sounds like. That is uh, insane. I feel like driving through it right now, but no, no. let's not do it no. right now. Let's wait a couple nights. I'm dreading the night when we go around taking pictures of these oh. places. 
we have to do it at three in the morning. Oh, stop it. You know how willingly I accept alien encounters, but that's what, like, I was reading the people were like, yeah, I thought I would always love to meet an alien. No, I, uh, I don't remember it. it. My body hurts now. I, just, yeah, I feel sore and I just have this feeling of like, I've been taken advantage of yeah. and I'm always going to be scared from now on. I want to get a drone now. <laughs> I've always hated drones since I've found out what they were, but I kind of want to get a drone and fly through the canyon so I can sit safely oh, in Houdini's mansion. Protect me, Houdini. Ghost of Houdini, protect me. <gasps> Control center will be the room that George Reeves killed himself <laughs> in. <laughs> somewhere safe. You know, somewhere safe, like Wonderland Avenue. That's terrifying. That scared the bejesus out of me. Yeah, it's. I'm not looking forward to walking to our car. After. No, no, no. We need an escort. We need a police escort. <laughs> not a Paul Ferguson. We need like a real escort. <laughs> the canyons, weird places, weird things. Weird Scary. Places. Yeah. I don't like them. Because Topanga Canyon. Have you driven through Topanga yeah. Canyon at, at night? night? Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's really scary. I one time it was getting dark and I kind of went not off road, but I'm like, oh, what's this? Like, there's another street that said Canyon. I'm like, I wonder if it's another Canyon. And it's just like I Dead went Boy Canyon. <laughs> Lost Boy Canyon. I went really deep, and there was just no houses, and then it just—it was like a dead end. And I was like in a can, like an actual canyon, like hills on both sides of me. I just couldn't believe how far I got. And then there was a truck coming from behind me, (laughs) and there was just—I—I couldn't believe. You remember, of course. Where were we when we were driving through one of the canyons late at night, and the car—it was like a cold night, and the car windows—they were so fogged up, and they wouldn't defrost. And you pulled over, and you got like a dirty rag out, and you were wiping the window, and you heard—I don't know what you heard but you ran in the car and we sped off i heard a uh, running coming oh. and i couldn't figure out where it's coming from and i yeah I, I ran back in the car and i locked the doors and it was just a jogger running up the canyon <laughs> and i'm like ooh, exercise <laughs> healthy hearts it was laurel canyon we were driving up what of course it, At, was. it was like after meltdown one night and it was just raining and we great. like great i remember that happening vividly and i remember you <sighs> screeching like a banshee child <laughs> <laughs> like a choked canary <laughs> with that in mind have a nice creepy christmas. christmas and a haunted hanukkah, hanukkah. starts on the same day this year oh does it well, really christmas is only one day hmm, sucker. Uh, Hanukkah starts i feel the like day. i just i feel like that's not true i feel like <laughs> november 3rd is when christmas starts the 64 days of christmas <laughs> all i want to do is watch fire in the sky now it's so weird because also what i was reading about the alien stuff is that people you don't really realize like if you see something say something but also if you see something sometimes you're just kind of like you know, you'll look back, yeah. things will happen to you, and you'll look back and be like, wait, that was weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's how a lot of these people's stories went, where yeah. it's like, did, you minute. know, weeks later, like, wait, what? <laughs> why? Yeah, why was the sky so bright? Yeah. Why did, yeah, why did I feel that way? It's unsettling. Have you ever think you saw an alien before? No. Really? I remember thinking I saw something once, and I can't, it was just, I remember seeing like a gray, silverish, kind of arrow-shaped thing in the sky <laughs> over the park. It looked like a stealth bomber, and it might have been a stealth bomber. <laughs> yeah, might yeah, have been. Might have been a stealth bomber. Oh, uh, I lived in like, Kabul. But, but <laughs> I live in a war zone, by the way. But then, like, why would I see a stealth bomber in, like, Echo Park? That doesn't make any sense. Like, either one of them is, is absurd. <laughs> clearing Chavez Ravine again. Nah. Yeah, I've never, I re- of course, I wish I had an experience, yeah. but I, I don't. We can make that happen right now. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> when we, me and Melissa, we were Joshua Tree, not Joshua Canyon, Joshua Tree, you know, a week or so ago, and we we're on one of the rocks, like waiting. We just stayed there until it got dark, trying to see the Milky Way, which it didn't because the moon was brighter than it's been in like 45 years. years. Yeah. <laughs> but then we came back and we found out that, like, while we were there, this couple from Los Angeles had gone missing in Joshua Tree <sighs> and they, like, ended up at the Mexican border and we're like, uh, how did we get here? That was that. Oh my God. I didn't mean piece together that you were there for that. Yeah. Wow. Well, we did take their car. 
We did escort them to the Mexican border and we said, you take a hike. And then we took out our memory wipers, a la men in black, <laughs> and said, I'm getting jiggy with it. <laughs> the magic words. No, you won't. Is that what Will Smith says at the end of the movie? Yes, yes. Yeah. Getting jiggy with it. No, you won't. <laughs> no, you won't. No, you won't. That's how I responded to getting jiggy with it. No, no, you won't. Well, you should all get jiggy oh, on God. iTunes. Don't sit, no, start over. No, I refuse to let that be the way you do this. Okay, then head on down to the wild, wild west of the internet <laughs> and get on iTunes and leave us a five-star review of LA Meekly. If you have an iPhone, all you do is open the podcast app, search for LA Meekly. It's right there. You're all signed in and everything. It helps us get more uh, popularity. It's easier for people to find us, get we, new listeners. We want we our podcast to go to prom this year please and please. don't dump any digital pig blood all over <laughs> follow us on twitter at la meekly you can follow us on instagram la underscore meekly we post every day every single day and we're getting more used to doing stories now which is mm-hmm. fun well, we go to fun places like the dude operate that was so much fun okay. it was raining there was dogs everywhere there was a saint bernard <laughs> next a to saint us bernard with tortillas hanging out <laughs> <of his mouth. laughs> he ate like 40 tortillas <laughs> facebook like us on facebook you can email us la.meekly at gmail.com you can send in ideas if you want we are also doing field trip episodes we swear we're waiting on the music for that they are coming soon if somebody just wants to lock down a date i'm reenacting another scene from ben-hur on that <laughs> our main hub is allymeekly.tumblr.com we have a lot of pictures on there the archive the archive is there this was a lot of fun i was really worried every year like next year i'm really worried about how we're gonna make creepy stories work in a way that is sort of a, like a package deal new and exciting this was a lot of fun even yeah. like cause especially because i like reading about true crime murder stuff and i like old hollywood so this was like a perfect merge between the two of them but where yeah, I- this was a lot of old hollywood in this one. yeah yeah it was but where mine was sort of more grisly and I felt like I wasn't being creepy enough you stepped in and over creeped me so if <laughs> I feel like this is a, a, a personal I think is a good episode. you like sheep no <laughs> I like sheep with brown lips and no eyes oh we also uh tour the Cecil Hotel which was a lot oh, of yeah. fun yeah we should talk about that a little yeah. bit wow was that creepy yeah we took a tour of the Cecil Hotel and we also sat in for a dispute between uh, <laughs> Bob, Bob Hope's estate yeah. yeah and we also met Robert from uh, Hidden History of yeah. LA which was a lot of fun he's a very lovely guy I like him if you ever have and a chance to take an SO tour tour please do that they are really great they pointed out when we are standing in front of Richard Richard Ramirez's room oh my god those whole you like this room (laughs) guess who (laughs) guess how many eyeballs are in this room the rooms are small the hallways are thin and creepy and the hopes are even smaller oh boy the worst part about it was where they're like okay we're going to the second floor and we're going to meet up and look at the dining room and you can take the elevator if you want of course we both get in the elevator second floor alone we get out nobody around yep. and Turns they met they we met the, me- the wrong floor. they met the mezzanine or whatever <laughs> and we pressed two but oh being in that elevator after seeing all the footage the night before uh i it would almost crawl out of my skin died I heart attackville like about it they're like oh we'll go up to the 14th floor which you know is the, the actually the, is 13th the 13th floor, floor and it's the top floor no i think the 15th is the top oh floor. is it okay yeah, there was one above us absolutely terrifying but we had a good yeah. time and then we walked to clifton's and decided we didn't want clifton's yeah we didn't feel like eating turkey legs at <laughs> 11 in the morning, morning yeah <laughs> also strangely enough we we, I don't know if we addressed this in our actual episode if we knew this but Unterweger's room is literally right around the corner from Ramirez's yeah, room like Ramirez like was the, like on, they would have to pass by each other yeah. to use the bathroom Ramirez is at 12 and I think Unterweger was at 17, 17. yeah we'll yeah. post pictures of it yeah, yeah strange place also like I've said how James Bond puts tape over yeah. his hotel room door to see if anyone has opened it when he's gone the Ramirez room and the Unterweger room had tape on the doors and the Ramirez room tape was broken oh, <laughs> I hate that place. I, it's so 
creepy. The walls are thin. The rooms are so small. The view is only like suicidal as I keep thinking. <laughs> All the windows have a sign on top of them that say jump here. <laughs> Bizarre stuff. Yeah. There's an extra, an update from last year's yeah. uh, haunted we, episode. We've done a dude parade and a Cecil Hotel <laughs> in the same week. Well, I hope you enjoy your holidays. I think you said that already. You can never say it too many times. See you guys on New Year's. Yeah, see you on New Year's see for New Year's. a whole new year. New year. Wait a minute. Yeah, New Year's. That's yeah, right. Stupid idiot. <laughs> Fathead. Um, 2017. Boy, I'm not ready to start this. Trump's New America. Come on. Trump's, Trump's, Trump's new first Ameri- New Year. Will we, will we even number years anymore? <laughs> All right. Well, that's been well, us. That was a downer way to end it. Here um, we go. You cut that out, please. <laughs> okay. So yeah, have a good holiday, everybody. Uh, open up your presents. Scream at your parents for not getting you that Tonka truck you wanted. Mm-hmm. Refuse to go to family parties like I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Staying home, watching Twilight Zone. Oh, boy. Oh, yes, please. Well, that has been yet another episode of... L.A. Meekly, quoting our favorite silent movie since... (laughs) 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 